for the listeners. It's a time for an awakening on Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennia. This is a history and current events program from a cultural perspective. We find this program necessary because Hosea 4, 6 states my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. But we as a people turn this around. Proverbs 4, 7 states wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. All thy getting, get an understanding. Again, welcome to the program this evening with your hosts, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. The number to reach us to join the conversation this evening with a question or comment is 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We're streaming live at several locations. You can go to timeforanawakening.com, which is the homepage and catch the live stream. From that location, you can go to www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. Again, that's www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening and catch the live stream there also. You can go to abb2me.com, that's A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I.com forward slash time for an awakening. They stream out of Ghana and the live stream ought to be playing there. Or you can download the TuneIn Radio app to any of your devices. TuneIn is a free app. In that TuneIn Radio app, just type in Time for an Awakening. There you'll see the icon, and you can stream your program live, even into your car if you have the Bluetooth capabilities or the auxiliary connection. Again, that's Time for an Awakening Radio program with the live stream on the TuneIn app. Drop us an email at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Again, that's timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Time for an awakening also has a fan page on Facebook and that Facebook search engine. Just type in time for an awakening radio program. There you always see interesting content being posted daily by myself or brother Bridget. And do me a favor before you leave that page, just hit that like button. That's time for an awakening radio program with the fan page on Facebook and time for an awakening media is also there. Always full of the latest podcast of the various programs on time for an awakening media, interesting articles that you can read. Download at later times and share with your friends. Also, check out that time for an awakening marketplace in our partnership with the BB2Me. Always interesting things in the marketplace all the time. Various African language classes, classes on education, economics, social systems, health, and much, much more being taught by professors on both the continent and in the diaspora. So, again, make that one of your favorites. Put that in your address bar. That's timeforanawakening.com. Timeforanawakening.com will take you straight to Time for an Awakening media it's 707 here and this chilly sunday night october the 16th we're in the sunday edition of time for an awakening our guest this evening in conversation activist attorney legal strategist uh, attorney deirdre farmer paleman will be joining us this evening uh, to talk about an interesting conversation surrounding the benin bronzes Also, we'll make some reparation conversation in because that's our our life's work and some other interesting topics that will uh, uh, intertwine into the conversation this evening. We'll be right back to get the program started after a brief word from our sponsors. Moderator, our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and, and our enemies. Thank you. 
everybody is here. You are listening to Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts or live programming, hit them up at timeforanawakening.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency in business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 215- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Overworked? Suffering with an underperforming company, headache customer, staff, or vendors? Or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? We turned a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one transformation created for entrepreneurs like you in various industries around the country. Not what you're used to from accounting and business consulting? Well, welcome to New Business Solutions. If you're ready to go beyond advising, coaching, and training and get implemented results, call 301-244-9072. Let New Business Solutions apply the best comprehensive administrative accounting, operations, human resources, management, sales, and marketing to help you actualize your vision for yourself and your company. From anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072. Spelled new as in numerous on your device right now. Book your free consultation at newbusinesssolutions.com. History is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day. It is also a compass that people use to find themselves on the map of human geography. History tells of people where they have been and what they have been, where they are and what they are. Most important, history tells a people where they still must go, what they still must be. The relationship of history to the people is the same as the relationship of a mother to her child. From antiquity to the present, our people need to develop a new paradigm. It's time for an awakening with your host, Brother Elliot, Sundays, 7 p.m., Fridays at 8 p.m. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit us up at Time for an Awakening, 
at gmail.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. It's 7-12 here in the Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Before we get started with our program this evening, I want to welcome in my co-host, Philadelphia activist and tour guide at the African American Museum here in Philadelphia at 7th and Arch Street. Brother Richard is with us. Brother Richard. Yes, sir, Brother Ellie. How are you, sir? All right. How you doing there? I'm doing good, man. I'm doing good. It's uh, The weather's changing, Richard, so uh, get your coat out. Hey, look, I, I Don't put the long johns on yet. They already had them on. Come on, I had to take them off though, because um, in the morning it's chillier than as the day progresses. I don't want to go there, but yeah, um, I, I, I can't play with. You know, this. Um, I never. I mean, I've been in the Northeast all my life, but I am just not adapted to the cold. It don't mean it, and I have never been in a lived well, you know, for a long period of time in any war weather. But yes, the season is changing, and it's and it seems um, funny because it is um, the forties, fifties, and then it gets into the seventies by the mid afternoon. But um, and I'm out already, so but everything else is good, and I'm looking forward to once again speaking with uh, Sister Dietrich Farmer uh, about. Um, a few things, so I'm 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 excited about that. In spite of the weather, yeah, you sh- you know you shared with me, Richard, when the uh, uh, in the program that she was on, and when she talked about the uh, Benin bronzes, and uh, I reached out to her because uh, you know she had when she was on last time with us, and it's uh, Richard. I didn't realize it's been about a year. Uh, she had suggested then about the. Uh, me getting the uh, ancestry DNA, and I finally did it. So um, I guess maybe we'll get a chance to talk about some of that later on. That that ain't really important. I think some of the work that she's doing and the uh, the think tank, the restoration study group is doing is uh, is uh, very important to our listening audience to hear some of the things. And, and Richard, we've talked about this on many occasions. Um, in order for us to move forward as a people, we need to establish think tanks study groups are doing serious scholarship and deciding in the direction that our people must go based on uh, uh, empirical and and established evidence uh, as a blueprint for us moving forward. Uh, I know you would agree with that, Richard. Definitely, definitely. Uh, Tonight, our special guest, attorney, legal strategist, human rights activist, Attorney Deidre Farmer-Palman is with us. She's also the executive director of the Restoration Study Group. And uh, Attorney Palman, I'm glad to have you with us this evening. Good evening. Can you hear me? I hear you loud and clear. Okay, wonderful, because I was nervous about whether or not I caught the right buttons that I'm supposed to press. <laughs> okay. oh, don't, tell me you, you, don't tell me you're one of those, too. Uh, it was so long ago that I heard the message. I was like, hmm, okay. Yeah, I'm 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 a dinosaur when it comes to technology. Welcome um, to the Thank clip. you. Thank you so much for um inviting me to be on the show tonight. I appreciate the opportunity always to to share information about what's happening, what we're working on and how we're trying to serve the community. You, um go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, no, I wanted to say my organization is the Restitution Study Group, oh, um, okay. and um, we're, we're a nonprofit located in the New York metropolitan area, 
and we're mostly concerned with slavery justice. So you'll hear us, you know, pursuing corporations or pretty much any entity that we determine are complicit in slavery and that there's some reasonable way that they can actually uh, basically pay restitution or reparations. And, um, and we approach them and we ask them to do that. And so that's what we're about. Attorney Deirdre, uh, I want you to kind of walk us through this um, because uh, the, 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 uh, the study group uh, put in a claim of co-ownership of the uh, Benin bronzes. Um, and I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I wasn't really familiar with the history of the Benin bronzes, and I'm quite sure I'm not alone. In fact, I'm the, during our conversation, I'm going to read to you um, some statistics on a study that was done uh, in Nigeria in reference to it and what the people there uh, kind of said in reference to their knowledge of it. But mm-hmm. uh, help us to understand uh, the history of the Benin bronzes, how that factors into us even being in the diaspora here in the United States, in the islands, in Brazil, how this is how this plays into our experience here and how this is very important to what's going on now. Absolutely, absolutely. The Benin bronzes are about 10,000 artifacts made out of bronze, ivory, leather, and wood. Uh, they were made starting in the 12th century, uh, ending probably sometime in the 18th uh, 19th century, the 19th century. And actually, they're probably there's some still being made, but the ones that I question were made between the 12th century and the 19th century in the kingdom of Benin. Okay, today they are iconic artifacts. Um, they were made with a small metal bracelet that was a currency in uh, in Africa particularly in Nigeria, what we call Nigeria today, they called the the currency Manila. So these metal Manilas were manufactured in Europe, and they were paid to the kingdom of Benin in exchange for enslaved people, people that were captive and sold into Europe, uh, to Europeans, that is, into the transatlantic slave trade. Now, a lot of people don't know this. I happened to learn about it because my last paper in law school was in a cultural property class, and I wanted to talk about a a black-related cultural property that was, um, you know, that was being debated on, you know, the status of of them, how to how to get them returned. And so my paper was about how do you get these Benin bronzes back. So I studied the law. Uh, international law to get an idea of how you get them back. In the course of that study, I learned this history that they were they were they were uh, exchanged for enslaved people, and so I thought, wow, you know, uh, this is this is really controversial. But at the time, there was no DNA testing available, 
So, you know, as a descendant of enslaved Africans, I, I just sort of stored this away and, you know, and just understood we don't really know who they, who, uh, who of the enslaved people in the Americas are connected to these bronzes. So, you know, it was just a fact that I, I, I just stored. Um, but over, the t- over time, you know, we've, we've, we've gotten these DNA tests that actually helped us to know who, who we are and which part of Africa we come from. And, and as it turns out, um, the United States um, has, you know, about 400 million or more descendants of enslaved Africans. Of that population, 93% of us have DNA from the area called Nigeria. And uh, while, you know, it's not clear where in Nigeria we're from, one thing we know is that from the research that the essentially the whole bite of Benin that covers that area called Nigeria was controlled by the kingdom of Benin. Either they were engaged in the slave trading themselves, or they collected tribute from others who were engaged in the slave trade. And in exchange for those, uh, those uh, acts of enslavement, they, they mostly received these manilas. This was their favorite thing, 50 for a woman and 57 for men. Now, was that, was that their form of um, dollars at that time, the Europeans? I mean, well, we know that. Go ahead. Well, uh, not as they actually used a couple of different forms of currency, but uh, Manilas were favored, and there was a particular reason why. But the, prior to that, the, the primary uh, exchange was the um, cowrie shells. They had a special cowrie shell, not the typical ones we see today. This was uh, a blue hue with a red stripe that went through it. Okay, so it was a little bit more unique than what we see today. Um, but the, you know, so there were some enslaved people uh, that were exchanged for cowrie shells. In particular, the ones that they sold into um, into Ghana, because there were folks that the Kingdom of Benin did not sell into transatlantic slave trade, but just right over uh, uh, to the, to their west to the Asante people to work the gold mines. And uh, there's a book by Toby Green that makes it clear that those people were not exchanged for manilas. They were exchanged for cowrie shells. Okay. And that's really important because one of the issues that we're having right now is uh, with the Smithsonian. They are tomorrow sending about $200 million worth of Benin bronzes back to Nigeria, to the heirs of the people who were slave traders, okay? Now, we've tried everything we could to stop this. I mean, starting in March, we, we began, uh, you know, having meetings with the Smithsonian, and uh, we had to petition uh, because they were engaged in fraud uh, in their uh, suggestion that their bronzes have no connection to the slave trade. They were just misinformed, trying to misinform me, but I did my research that I, that I know. Um, not only did I do the research, I actually consulted with the foremost expert on uh, the slave trade in Nigeria, who is, you know, who is not from Nigeria, um, Professor Paul Lovejoy. Uh, now, I don't know if you're familiar with Lovejoy, but you can look him up. Uh, we, we were colleagues. We worked in the past 
on uh, another case involving Africa, but he is very pro-return of the bronzes. I mean, even though he's a slave, great scholar. And, it, and we are too. We actually want certain bronzes returned. There's some, though, we do not believe should be returned. In, in other words, from the 1500s until the 1800s, the bronzes were only made with these slave trade manilas. And so we believe these were financed with with our uh, our ancestors' lives. And so those bronzes uh, should not be exclusively owned by the Kingdom of Benin. Um, now, we might be able to share them or figure out some way to share them, but, but for them to actually walk away with the fruit of our ancestors' labors. This is this is money that they that our ancestors should have been paid, not the kingdom of Benin. They took that those Manilas, melted them down, and cast them into the bronzes. So when you look at a bronze, and you have quite a number of them in Philadelphia and in, in, at the University of Pennsylvania, when you look mm-hmm. at them, you are literally looking at the currency, the actual coins that were melted down. And it, but they were exchanged for our ancestors, and it's it's just fascinating to even imagine that this is possible. But but it is that is the actual money. Now, um, in the United States, there's certain places. Um, one place in particular that the Benin Kingdom enslaved people were brought to. I'm not exactly sure why. I, I probably you know could read the slave traders' um, uh, um, notebooks and, and learn exactly why, but they were mostly brought to uh, Charleston, South Carolina. That was the main uh, the main place where they were exchanged. There were a couple of other places, but Charleston was where the majority were, were brought to. Uh, and there were not a lot, but, you know, we, we, we've done like a very conservative estimate, uh, and in part because, strangely, the, the research around uh, the Kingdom of Benin is is, is – dispersed. You know, you have one scholar that will study one aspect of the slave trade, and they'll give you a handful of, of, of details, and then another. They all seem very isolated. Just, you know, one of the things that we're going to work on is really just trying to consolidate that information. And uh, Right now, you know, one of the things you'll find in a lot of the, the scholars' books is oh, not, some, not many people were enslaved in the kingdom of Benin. Or the king, the over didn't, didn't uh, 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 he was not strongly into uh, the sl- enslavement of people. He was a, he really opposed the slave trade, and so he stopped trading in enslaved people for you know a century and a half. And of course, this information is not accurate. It is absolutely not true. Now we estimate that there's probably at least a million people who were um, enslaved by the Kingdom of Benin. Uh, now. What can we verify at this time that's stated clearly in the transatlantic slave trade database? Only 103,000, okay, because this is we're jumping into this research suddenly, and it's going to take time to pause through all the scholars' work to figure out, you know, the different names, the different names for the same port, and there's just a whole lot of information that's just really confusing. So what we knew, what we know for sure, is there's 103, and of course, you know, for the United States, there were only 388,000 people enslaved in the United States that were brought here in the transatlantic slave trade. So we know 103,000 can grow pretty large 
over over time. Um, the the other thing about the United States is um, uh, there there were also some some enslaved people, of course, that were brought from from some of the uh, other American uh, nations uh, through you know uh, you know this uh, the slave trade within the Americas. But for the most part, you know, you can just 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 get an idea of how far you you can go with uh, uh, just a handful of people. Nevertheless, you know, what we estimate is that you might have about fifty or so uh, Manilas per per sculpture or, or artifact, and um, you know that would mean you would only need about ten thousand people to to make all of the the bronzes for sure. So, um, yeah, so what are we trying to do? Um, at this point, you know, we filed the case. We filed for an injunction to block the transfer that's happening tomorrow. We were not able to get that uh, injunction. Um, the judge actually has even some misinformation in his decision. Uh, he's, he's under the uh, impression that, that we are wrong in our understanding that there is no museum for these bronzes to go into. He doesn't realize that we do know what we're talking about. There's a museum these bronzes are supposed to go into that won't be ready until 2025. So uh, these bronzes are just going into the vacuum of Nigeria. We don't know where they're going to go. But we can tell you this much about the city of Benin right now. Um, this is a, a this, this, the city of Benin which is located in Edo State, Nigeria, is probably the number one slave trafficking place in the world right now. Uh, and, and, and this is something a lot of people don't know, that they, there's a massive uh, trafficking business there where they're, they're trafficking children, young girls, and even some young boys, into the slave trade in Europe. I mean, so they they're being they're 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 sex slaves, and and uh, I mean they they have a whole elaborate ritual coming right out of the the uh, Benin city, right at the home of the Kingdom of Benin, right where these bronzes are going. People are watching their children uh, to ensure that they're not snatched into slavery today. Now, can you imagine that? that all these years later, the same place would still be engaged in this practice of enslaving people. It's horrible. And not only do they enslave people for sex slavery, they, they, they enslave them for domestic slavery as well and for um, organ harvesting. Okay, so these are the things that are happening right there in the same place that these Benin bronzes are going to, where they were made, you know, they talk about an amazing culture, but uh, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of work that has to happen around this, this kingdom. And no, this information about this, this trafficking is coming from a United States report from the State Department that went out uh, in 2021. Uh, Antonio, Deirdre, the most of the trafficking now. I'm sorry. Hold on a second. I'm sorry. Uh, most of the trafficking now, you said the the young girls that are being trafficked are going to Europe? To Europe, to Italy, to Germany, um, yeah, to, to European nations and, and some Arab nations as well. They're now, not coming, they're, it's not transatlantic anymore. 
but it's it's happening. That's right. Once again, right there in the same in the mean city, and, and it's shocking. And let me just say, that's not all that's going on there. Um, there is also um, a practice of human sacrifice. This is a, a wide practice throughout Nigeria, but it's absolutely practiced widely in Benin City. In fact, just recently, uh, in August, they 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 busted an, a, a shrine with 20 corpses, two of them of children. There was a ritual sacrifice for money. This, this is one of the things that's going on. People are being snatched off the street for money uh, ritual sacrifices. Now, this is not necessarily the kingdom of Benin or the, you know, the, the palace involved with it. And in fact, the palace had to issue a notice making it clear that they, they fired their war chief, the Izomo is what he's called, because he was found to be engaged in unpalaced uh, un, un, un activities. Okay? So, uh, uh, so, you know, they issued it in August, but they had fired the guy in January. Okay, now we don't really know why, except that we know that the story of our demand for co-ownership broke the same week that they issued this letter. Um, bottom line is, we're wondering what the story is. What is the what is the underlying story? Why is the Oba distancing himself suddenly from his war chief? But that is the bottom line. The human trafficking, the human sacrifice. Now, the interesting thing about the the reason why we've had to bring this case um, is that the bronzes had to be um, they had to go through a, 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 a change of status for the museum. The museum had to actually uh, release the bronzes so that they could be transferred over, and, and this uh, process um, had to be approved by the Board of Regents. The Board of Regents has um, two members that are very, very um, prominent. We have the Vice President of the United States and the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Both of them serve, and both of them voted. Now, what we realize is that, you know, we were given fraudulent information, okay? Essentially, we were told that they cannot... That first of all, when I had the conversation with the, the woman who's in charge of the museum, she said that uh, she never heard of a Manila, okay, and she had never seen one. And her archivist basically, you know, nodded along. No, I'm not familiar. Never heard of them. Well, wait a minute. You know, and and, and she was she was the curator at the Smithsonian. At the Smithsonian, these are the folks who are in charge of the Benin bronzes. Okay, they said they never heard of a Manila. And they had never seen one. And then the archivist. Oh, my goodness. Uh, then the archivist said, oh, maybe I did. I, you know, I think maybe I did see one uh, on a bronze. And, and it is true that there, there are some bronzes that have the Portuguese traders holding manilas, okay, or manil surrounded by manilas. They depict that. Um, so I was like, I just, I looked at them. I, this is a virtual conversation, and I just said, I can't believe you guys are serious. This is this. any scholarly document uh, will explain this slave trade connection. Every, everywhere you read it, it's everywhere. 
And they were like, no, never heard of it. And there's no way that you can prove that the bronzes that we have have a connection to slavery. Now, you know, I went and I did my research, and I, and I, I started with their books, their own books. And they actually have a treatise that very clearly makes states that their bronze, that the bronzes were made from these manolas. Um, in addition to that, their website gives the same information. So my conclusion is they 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 either knew or they should have known. That's the bottom line. And they you know they're they're they were definitely uh, engaged in fraud when they spoke with me. Um, if they shared that with me, then they, they must have shared the same kind of false information with the board, the board members. And, of course, I, I inquired. I said, you know, will you share this with the board? When is the board going to be meeting? You know, I just wanted to know because I wanted to be clear or I wanted to be present if it's even possible. Everything was done secretly. I wasn't informed. And the next thing you know what I hear that they're giving the that the board voted to give them away. Now, what the thing that I another thing that I found that was very important was that the Kingdom of Benin had their own anthology published in 2018, and in that anthology, they admit to uh, making the bronzes using these Manilas from people from from the slave trade. They they admit that they traded people for these Manilas. Of course, they didn't know you know we were going to be coming forward to make a demand for co-ownership. Uh, so they were willing to admit it in 2018. These days, they they don't mention it at all. And I mean, in, in all of their inquiries, uh, all of the agreements that they're drawing up, all of these wonderful announcements and ceremonies, dancing around and signing, and you know, all you know, all of this stuff that's going on around them getting the bronzes back. They're very careful not to mention anything about the slave trade. Not only that, the, in the United States, and I, I'm I'm baffled over this. This is one of the reasons why I'm grateful for this opportunity to speak with you. The media has a complete blackout on this, uh, our uh, effort to get co-ownership. Uh, and I thought for sure that if there was a lawsuit pending, they would mention that, but not even a lawsuit in the federal district court has been able to break the the silence from the media over these Benin bronzes. Now, and, 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 and I, I'm baffled over that, but, but I, I have to just turn to, you know, the, the information that the Kingdom of Manin has provided and, and, and just and explain to you why we say co-ownership. Uh, and, and um, you know, they, they make it clear that they started uh, making all of their bronzes from the 16th century, which is the 1500s, uh, using these manilas. And the reason why was because they're, the metal was completely unavailable to them at that point. They used to receive the metal that they made all of the previous bronzes with from northern Africa, and the, the trade route has shut down. They were no longer able to get the metal. These bronzes obviously were very important to them, uh, important enough that they would soon require the Portuguese to, to, to carry these to, to make whatever kind of trades they, they were going to, uh, to make. So, I mean, they didn't only trade humans for these manilas. They also traded, you know, pepper and fabrics and a few other products. But, you know, you can look in the books and they'll, in, in, in the scholarly books, and they'll, they'll show you. The main thing these folks wanted were people. <laughs> that, is, that is what they paid the big 
the big uh, manilas for. You know, that's what they paid the most manilas for, for the people. Um, and once again, doesn't take a whole lot of these manilas to make a bronze. Um, but that's the, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's why we know all of the bronzes from the 1500s to the, to the uh, 1900s, I mean, to the 1800s, were made with these manilas. The other reason why we know they were made with them is that uh, there are some uh, scientists who have tested them. Um, the British Museum uh, worked with um, a metallurgist, um, P.T. Craddock, P.T. Craddock, and he tested the, the metal, and he knew he was able to distinguish between metal that was clearly from Africa and metal that had alloys from from uh, Europe. In particular, they they were coming from the Hartz Mountains in Germany. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, so so we so it can you can know you can determine exactly which of these bronzes are coming from. European slave traders, Manilas, and metal that they received from from within Africa. So you know it's very clear. So that's that's why we say we 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 are co-owners of the ones that were made from the 1500s forward. That's 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 the story. I, I read in the published report that this, uh, uh, I guess she's the curator at the Smithsonian Blankenberg. Uh, told you that uh, the decision was to return the bronzes was final and nothing was going to be done in reference to it. But I know that won't, won't stop you or the group in pushing forward. Oh, no, no, no. And in fact, you know, the, the, the reason why she, she came out and said that was because just prior to that, she, she said that she would like to invite us in with our uh, uh, historian and our, um, you know, uh, curator to work with them to to design future exhibits. Okay, so I'm you know I'm I you know I I I have uh, consultants. With the way we work is with consultants. We don't really have a, a a permanent staff. I'm the only permanent staff member. Um, so we hire consultants to do whatever the little thing is that they're coming in to do. And so you know I had already interviewed uh, folks who would come in to do the the cons- consulting work with the Smithsonian. Um, one of them we actually hired. So we actually, you know, made an investment. So I'm checking in with her to find out well, what's happening. You know, when are you going to call this meeting for us to sit down and, and make sure that the slave trade part of the story is included in the story of the bronzes that the Smithsonian has. And she kept dragging her feet. And at a certain point she just said, okay, no more. You know, we, the, we, we're going to send them back, and the decision is final. Now, uh, now that was coming from her, but uh, there was another pre- there was a proceeding that we had going that was independent of her. Okay, and our complaint doesn't really speak of that at this point, but we, we will be amending that complaint. I mean, the, the thing about the complaint that we submitted is it is very, very modest, and that is because, you know, my lawyers only were hired two days before they filed these papers, okay? Um, we, we were not able to raise the money, and so, you know, I'm, I'm financing this litigation out of my own pocket, okay? So um, bottom line is that we, we hired them two days, two, two days before, you know, we, well, it was a Wednesday before the Friday that we filed it. 
Um, so that's the, that's the story. So um, the interesting thing about that is that the Smithsonian have not um, really responded to the procedure that I had uh, been pursuing. It was part of the fraud and waste and abuse uh, um, hotline that we filed a complaint. And we still don't have a response from that. We don't. We still don't have an official answer. But what happened was, the day before we filed, I guess only because the lawyers called to to get the address uh, to where we would send this thing. That's when they actually gave us what they considered the final, their final, final. <laughs> okay. But nevertheless, in their papers, they complained that we took too long to file an action, which I think is comical. It's comical. We we literally took a day and a half after they gave us our notice to file to file the complaint. Um, yeah, so that's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a whole lot of game playing, and it's not clear really what's going on. I mean, I, I sometimes wonder, is there some national security issue here? Uh, but no one has told me that there's a national security issue. Um, you know, I just, I really do not understand how, for example, Kamala Harris, if she knows the truth, I mean, she's part Jamaican. Jamaicans are 20, uh, 80, 82% of the Jamaican population has DNA from this area. So these, these bronzes belong to Kamala Harris, too, you know? Um, so, you know, so it's, it's, it baffles me that anyone, anyone who is a descendant of enslaved Africans would want to give back to the heirs of the slave traders the very currency, the very money that was exchanged for our ancestors. I mean, it just hurts my heart that people do not understand how serious this is. Well, you know? uh, listen, I, this uh, attorney, Deirdre, I think some of them understand clearly. But just mm-hmm. as you have pointed out uh, from history that some people that look like us was heavily involved in this trade. In 2022, people that look like us are heavily involved uh, in nefarious things against their own people. It's just a fact of reality. Um, a couple of things I want to mention. I'm Pastor Mike, the brother Richard. Um, I read in some of um, the writings that uh, it's thousands of these. I think in one piece I read, it was over 5,000 of these artifacts that is dispersed all throughout Europe in uh, uh, British museums in Germany here in the United States. Uh, they're all in Europe and the United States. Uh, and um, go yeah, ahead. Yeah. Well, you know what? I mean, there could be some in other places. I mean, folks, a lot of folks have been in bronzes around them and they have no idea. Well, it, um, and yeah. And it mentions that some have been sold in private galleries for millions of dollars. Oh, no, that's an understatement. Um, the last um, bronze that I saw a, a sale record of was was thirteen million dollars. Okay, and that was sold uh, in twenty sixteen. Today, I think the value is is a lot higher. And what we estimate, first of all, we we know that there's more than five thousand from an inventory. That uh, uh, let me just be straight up. I spoke directly to the princess of the kingdom of the name. And she told me there are 10,000 of them. And, uh, and that is also verified by Dan Hicks in his book, The Brutish Museum, 
um, and he says there are 10,000 of them. So what we estimate is that the value is anywhere between 20 and $30 billion. Note, there are other scholars, um, Alan Ryder, who says, um, uh, well, not Alan Ryder, I'm sorry, Paula Gershik, Paula Gershik, who says that most of these bronzes were made with the metal manilas, which essentially means that most of those bronzes belong to us. And that's why I say we, descendants of enslaved Africans, are really quite wealthy. And if we can actually, I don't know, come out of our dry bone status, if we can just <laughs> snap out of whatever it is that we're confused with right now and understand this is truly our wealth. It is 100% our wealth. The, the ones from the 1500s to the 1800s belong to us. If these things are worth 20 to $30 billion, that means that probably at least 10 to $15 billion of them belong to us. And that's what this fight is about, retaining the wealth that belongs to us. This was supposed to be paid to our ancestors when they were sending us over here. Instead, the Kingdom of Benin, they took the the the, the uh, Manilas and they made artwork with them, you know? And I, I do hear this argument of, you know, the concern about the, these people look like us. And it's like, you know, some folks are like, you know, we can't talk about this because it's a black thing, you know? But the let me just say that the Nigerians are not thinking that this is a black thing. They are just hustling their butts with our bronzes out of, out of, uh, out of our countries as quickly as possible before we are fully awake. I mean, and right, believe me right now, they're shook because we know, and they're probably amazed at how, how unwilling we are to stand up for our own stuff. There are black media outlets, black newspapers that are just not willing to take on this story. <laughs> you. You know? And I'm, I'm, just, I'm just flabbergasted over the whole thing, you know, um, they're waiting for, you know, uh, your uh, Western, uh, you know, white American publications to, to publish a story before they do, you know, it's just crazy. And I, I, I just really, um, I'm, I'm, I'm beside myself all over the, the lack of, um, of, of interest, it seems. Even, I'm even battling with folks who, you know, what is that 16, 19 woman? I'm battling with her. She wants to know why I'm calling this to her attention. <laughs> I'm just like, what? <laughs> you know, you are the, the 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 queen of the slavery education right now. You should you should want to know this stuff. And believe it or not, along with a bunch of other African Americans who who really I would say were suckered into signing on to this Accra Declaration, they actually find a way uh, our our right to fight for these Benin bronzes. I mean, I, you know, they weren't, they weren't speaking for me, but they were not aware of this history. The Kingdom of Benin showed up at a conference in Accra and, you know, t- did a great uh, presentation on how, how sad they are that their bronzes have been taken away and, and, and you know, the tragic you know, the deaths, and then, then there were deaths. There were deaths. Um, in, in, uh, and then I'll tell you a little bit about what this is, how the, the saga of them having these bronzes removed from the kingdom of Benin. 
folks were sympathetic towards them, and they signed on to this Akrai uh, Declaration that essentially allows for us to, to just support them getting the bronzes back. Now, the, the trauma that they suffered was a punitive expedition in 1897, and this is how the bronzes got spread around the, the world. The Kingdom of Benin had been in business with the British for at least a century and a half, selling us, buying and selling us, selling our ancestors into slavery. Um, as with most other colonial um, powers, they slowly, you know, use their slave trade relationships to get cozier, set up on, on, in the African uh, nations where they were trading people, and then they started getting engaged in other types of business. Well, the British were engaged in the palm oil business with the Kingdom of Benin. And if anyone's seen the movie, The Woman King, you, you hear them talk about that palm oil business. They even show a bit of how it looks. And a lot of the slave traders were getting into that business as well, some transitioning out of the slave trade, um, but most of them holding on to the slave trade and adding the palm oil business. That's what was going on. So the British were mostly interested in the palm oil, and they, were, they wanted to have a meeting with the Oba because there was some price fixing going on in uh, that area of Africa. Uh, they wanted to, you know, confront the Oba about it. And so they went unarmed to a meeting with the Oba. Now, initially the Oba said, you know, I'm doing my father's business. You cannot come right now. And what that meant was he was engaged in the mass slaughter of slaves, people that they enslaved, and they were doing it for war power. It must have been about 250 people they had slaughtered at the time uh, when the British approached the, the, the kingdom. And, um, the, and ultimately, the Oba told them that they can come on. Uh, but um, they, they, they didn't realize what they were, they were about to be confronted with. They were encouraged to leave their weapons, and they went unarmed with African porters carrying their things in. And sure enough, when they got to the, to the kingdom, they, they were attacked and, and slaughtered. Okay, so these were unarmed British Navy officers that were slaughtered. I'm not sure of the count. I see different numbers. Some places they say eight, sometimes they say 18. It's not clear, but they were unarmed. And we don't know how many of the porters were killed. They were a lot, I think a lot of them were from the Hausa, the Hausa tribe. Um, in any case, the British came back with about three or four ships full of, of soldiers with arms, and they destroyed the kingdom of Benin. They took away the things that they used to, uh, to summon their war power. And this, of course, is a, and this is one of the things I was studying when I was in law school, the, the laws of war. You know, how it is that nations can confiscate contraband, anything that gives the opposition power is, is legitimately confiscated in a war. And when the Kingdom of Benin slaughtered those unarmed soldiers, that was a declaration of war on the British. And that's why they 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 according to the laws of war, they had a right to come in there and confiscate 
whatever gave the, the, the kingdom of Benin power. Now, I know folks are going to be mad at me for saying this, but this is really what the law of war is. And, in fact, it's the reason why Lincoln was able to emancipate us. And that's what's important for black people to understand. You know, you can talk about, oh, this is colonial manipulation. This happened in 1897. In 1865, that's exactly, well, actually it was 1862, that's exactly the same law of war that Lincoln used to free us. That's what the Emancipation Proclamation is based on. They were able to take the enslaved people from all the rebelling states, all the rebelling states, because the, 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 the rebels were using us to fight the war. So we were war contraband. So it was a confiscation. Of the, in our independence at that time was a confiscation of the thing that gave the uh, southern planters power, just like the bronzes were the thing that gave the Benin kingdom power. They used them whether it was a psychological, it, it was essentially, well, listen, you, you can be, if you're spiritual, then you believe that they got spiritual power. Otherwise, you would conclude that it was a psychological power that they got from these bronzes. But these bronzes sat on ancestral altars, and they slaughtered people on those altars. And if you see our video, you can see an example of what a fairly used altar looks like. Um but that's what the reality is. These overheads, there's, there's a couple of different types of bronzes. There's a, a lot, and we don't know how many of each one there are. But you'll see a lot of overheads, uh, with, and, and you'll see ivory tusks that would, stick, that would fit into the overheads. Those are the kings. And the, uh, the queens don't have the ivory tusks, but they typically have um, uh, the, the top of the head sort of protrude out or upward. Um, but, uh, that's one type. There are some overheads that we now know are not really overheads. I would say they are heads of opposing kings that they killed. And they actually used the heads, the real heads, they beheaded these folks and they used those heads as a mold for those sculptures. Okay. So I have actually made a call for DNA testing in, um, in some of these molds because, uh, the Met, for example, talks about substances on these bronzes, and they can't quite figure out what they are, you know. But I'm like, well, why don't you do some DNA testing, and let's see if you can pick up some DNA so we can see if we can figure out who are some family members that might be connected to people who who's, uh, who are connected to the bronzes. In any case, um, that's uh, – <laughs> That that's a a little bit of what 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 the story is here. Um, uh, I'm sorry, uh, you may have some questions. Oh yeah, yeah. You know what? I got so many things, and plus I want to kind of spin off on to uh, uh, because a lot of people saw that movie and it, it caused controversy among some of our people in certain circles. And I want to spin around mm-hmm. back to that because um, I think it was a lot of propaganda mixed in with what the people were seeing. And you kind of touched on some of that in your conversation mm-hmm. so far. But, uh, Richard, let, let me pass the mic to Brother Richard. You know, uh, as, I, as I hear you, you know, I was excited um, when I, I heard, you know, your, even though I was wrong initially in characterizing it, but I was excited in hearing, um, you know, what, the, what you're engaged in in relationship to the bronze and, and Benin and, and, and co-ownership. 
Um, and as and and I appreciate you uh, unfolding, you know, the your 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 journey so far in um, in relationship to the court case. And and as I was hearing it, I have to say, um, um, I I I, I have I'm uh, twisted. I'm gonna call it twisted with the good and the bad as you're developing, you know, this um, this legal pursuit of co-ownership. Um, and, and, it, and, and, I ha- and when it raises my first question, because you were raising the point of why the silence amongst black folks in general, especially in, in the um, political um, machinery and, 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 and the um, communication machinery, and the point of not just the museums, but the um, even with um, the the nation state of Nigeria, um, in in relationship to you propose you're presenting this here um, legal um, claim for co ownership, and and it and it does that co ownership does that mean we as black people and as the way I interpret what you were saying, we as black people as a political, because of our historical unity um, and because of the the historical um, consequences that we find ourselves specifically in North America, that we are a unit that is entitled um, to this um, wealth or at least recognition of this these wealth um, now considered wealth objects. Is that that we as a collective unit is is entitled um, from a legal perspective? Is does that does that make sense? And is that the basis of your position with the you know the the case? Okay. Well, the reason why we're entitled, and I'll give you an example, just using my own DNA. Um, we're entitled because many of us are descended from the very precise people that were enslaved who's, who financed these bronzes with their lives, okay? Now, unfortunately, because of the way that the slave trade was practiced, we cannot know with absolute certainty because we didn't come with visas or passports, right? 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 So we don't know exactly which one of us Right? right, but but we can. I can tell you some things about my DNA that helps me to know with more certainty that I'm I'm probably certainly one of them. Does that mean? And I and I may be redundant, and I and I understand your point, and hopefully for the listening audience and being uh-huh. able to follow our, our our exchange right at this point. Um, mm-hmm. it's this good and bad. Um, that I'm I'm in. I'm interpreting because doesn't that make us a in relationship to international law a legal entity that is um, demanding a request from a nation state? Well, we're not dealing with Nigeria because Nigeria does not possess the bronzes. Okay, Okay? the museums have them, right? And 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 Nigeria has not won any kind of lawsuit that to proclaim that they have a right to these bronzes, okay? It's only okay. through a sense of moral obligation, 
that anyone is returning these bronzes to Nigeria. They have not gone through any kind of litigation. And in addition to the moral obligation, a whole lot of pressure after the, um, the, uh, the George Floyd murder, you know, that Black Lives Matter, you know, they were actually making some fuss on behalf of Nigeria, but they did not know that these bronzes were slave trade money. Does that make the legal, um, um, the, the legal, I don't know what's the right word, the, the, the legal claim that is being projected, if it's not towards the nation state of Nigeria, and it's, and it's because the museums, does that make the museums that the claim is going against, or does that make United States, which the museums are representatives of, um, well, that, the, the Smithsonian is the only museum that uh, that we're dealing with that that that's really a United States entity. There are other museums that we are we've reached out. We reached out to many museums here in the United States and in the United Kingdom and in Germany. Uh, we reached out to governments as well. But as far as I know, I mean, there there are some in Germany. There are some states that. Um, that control the the artifacts. Um, typically, they're more like state uh, states have to approve them. Um, but getting back to the United States, so no, the Smithsonian is the only one. Now, let me just explain this to you. We we actually sat down with the the princess who was representing the Oba of Benin. Okay, we had a we had a video uh, virtual conversation about them, and she. She actually agreed that we have a legitimate claim to the mm-hmm. bronzes. And so she said, okay, you, you have to speak to the government because they are collecting them for the nation. Right. And so that's where we got stuck. We reached out to um, the National Commission for Museums and Monuments a few times. We reached out to um, the... And and it wasn't just us reaching out. You know, I I I have an associate who used to head up another parastatal, whom I've traveled to Nigeria and done presentations on uh, DNA using DNA for Pan African Unity. So even he reached out to the head of you know this is his direct colleague to say we know this person. She's been here. She's you know this is a legitimate person. You can talk to her. No response. Okay, so it's not even like a stranger off the street reaching out and trying to get attention. No, there were people in Nigeria that were actually pulling for this conversation, but uh, they were unresponsive. And 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 and, and to back to my, you know, the good and bad of it, the you know, because um, what's the um, uncomfortable um, truth, and that's what I'm considering the bad is the um what you're presenting or helping us to um unravel is the historical narrative that um we may have about Benin, about the slave trade and um the relationship that um African people um then and as you you were developing even now have and that that because you know some would say we've been trying to romanticize our African historical narrative, but what you're um, raising and what what you're saying we have to clarify is the complicity of of Africans in relationship to slavery and our acceptance of that. Um, 
in, in, in order to be able to not necessarily, for me, it's not necessarily blame, but to be clear what actually occurred and how did we get here and who was complicit in us getting here. The narrative, right. yeah, that narrative um, and that responsibility with this lawsuit gives us the ability to flush that out more, um, you know, uh, in our own interests. Um, right. In relationship to that, that, you know, that there's good and bad actors all over. If we're going to take ownership of the, the historical narrative, um, that 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 will be a lot of uncomfortable truths. And you mentioned um, Toby Green, and I'm, I was looking at A Fistful of Shells, and you also mm-hmm. mentioned uh, Lovejoy. And um, I was looking at Jihad in West Africa, um, you know, in his work and dealing, you know, with the, the period in that point. So the, the other the other thing that I wanted to um, get clear, if you don't mind, um, mm-hmm. this is like um, this will how much research still has to be done in order to make a um, legal case. And again, a legal case in the American courts for this co-ownership? Well, you know what? It all, it's all about the, um, it's about the judge. Okay. I, I would say that we've already done enough research at this point, mm-hmm. you know, so it's, it's in part about the judge and how brave the judge is in making the decisions that might not be consistent with what, you know, the party is to put him in into the seat might want. Um, you know, so much is politics, okay? A lot of what happens in the courtroom is politics. Um, so um, a decision, you know, we, you know, one of the amazing things about the law is you can, you know, look at, you can use the same, I, I, even the, you can use the same book and make two different arguments, you know what I'm saying? Right. Um, so it's, it's, it's really, it's really a, a political, uh, to a certain extent, a political decision. So how much more research? Well, I would say we've we've done enough. We've done enough. Okay. Now, beyond that, why why do we even have to be in the court? Honestly, I you know the Nigerians didn't have to go into court in order for them to be getting these bronzes back. You know, we shouldn't have to be there. But I'm telling you, the reason why we're in court is because we were just trying to stop these bronzes from being transferred. And the only thing, the only option left for us was to try to get a, an injunction. You know, so, and so that's yeah. what. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, so that's that's all that was there. Now here's the problem. Here's the problem. You know, right? I think I mentioned earlier that there's no there's no museum built to receive these bronzes, and 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 there there have been a few articles about the bronzes um, that make it clear that the ones that are in Nigeria nobody nobody even goes to see at the museum, right? So there's like no interest in going to see the bronzes in Nigeria. So you got to ask yourself, like, what is what is happening here? Now, the Kingdom of Benin says, you know, these are these these artifacts are like their ancestors in captivity, right? You know, which to me is, I think, an opportunistic statement because they know most people don't know the history. So when you hear it, you're going to think, oh, their ancestors were in captivity, right? Um, when they re- it's really our ancestors that they sold into captivity. So it's, you know, it's a ticky thing. Um, let me, let, let me, uh, <clears throat> Attorney Deirdre. I'm having, 
I understand the point, and I know that this is within, especially with amongst us in North America, um, especially at this point, there is a lot of 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 is again trying to to flush out a, a, a historical understanding of our connection to um, um, to Africa or to those um, kingdoms, to those people, on one hand, and then our 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 what's that? I'm gonna call it pain in relationship to being the product of this this exchange that created so much pain for us um, as a people. Um, but the, the I think that uh, I don't know at what point do we um, negate, even though we're in 2022, the historical cultural reality of the people of that time, right or wrong. Um, just to, you know, um, because we're trying to flush out um, our standing, and I'm going to call it that, as a people in North America who has had no standing as a people because we have no nation state and we are not declared as a national group who have rights amongst other nations. If that right. Makes well, sense. right. Well, I don't. Once again, I don't know. Um, I, I'm hopeful that there will be a judge who will recognize us as humans today, right? Um, with the kinds of rights that, for example, the the heirs of the straight the slave traders have. I mean, these nobody's questioning the group of people who are marching away with those bronzes in the way that they may question us in the courtroom. Like, why why do you have a uh, a right to these bronzes. Well, we have as much of a right to them as the the, the, the slave traders is. It was 125 years ago that these things were taken away. How do we know who these people are? You know, just because they, you know, are coming from Nigeria doesn't mean that they're the ones who were the related to the. You know, I mean, it, it, you know, we we are questioned in ways that no one else is questioned. And what I've realized is from this particular journey that, you know, most people don't care anything about us. I agree. And that's the tragedy of it. And 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 I would say this, that the the Nigerians, the, the bronzes are just one example. You know, they're just one, one example. But they're, they're, they're much more important things than the bronzes for us. You know, because we, we're, like, we're like orphan children. You know, and that's what I'm seeing. You know, whatever that syndrome is that a orphan child might have, where are my parents? Why did they abandon me? All of that trauma that a, a, an orphan child experiences, I'm seeing that in us. You know, the shame. We can't speak about it. You know, we're carrying the shame, and these guys are carrying our treasures away. You know, and we're sitting around the shame to talk about slavery. And they're like, give me the best dope. They're, they're taking the money again, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, we, there's, we, uh, my hope is that folks can wake up quick enough to understand that this is, a, this is an opportunity to ensure that, that they don't get to take the, the wealth that they took before from us, okay? Now, what Africa can do besides this, because this is not like the biggest thing that they can do. And I say Africa, but really you're talking about Nigeria and the kingdom of Benin, but Africa in general, all those nations that we were taken from, an easy thing that they can do 
that gives us more than than these bronzes and billions is uh, give us dual citizenship. Give us give us a home in Africa. You know, one of the things I wish that I had during this pandemic was dual citizenship so that I could just get out and get away from all this craziness happening here in the United States and go sit in Africa where there really, really wasn't a problem. And we know now there really is less of a problem. I mean, they know genetically, you know, Senegal or, you know, that Senegambia area. These folks, they have something in their genes or blood or whatever that really prevents them from getting, um, you know, this dreaded disease that we're dealing with today. Um, I'd, I'd rather be over there. You know, but we we don't have any citizenship there, and 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 one of the things I I wonder with all of this Pan African literature, all of these Pan Africans, all these global Africans, why is it that they why is it that they don't understand that Africa can give us dual citizenship in in a not tomorrow? Why is it that they won't give that to us? You know, and I don't know how I find it hard to be loyal to a continent that just has no loyalty to us. You know, that to me, that has to come first. That has to come first before we start signing any Accra Declaration or any of this stuff. It's so easy for them to give us dual citizenship. And show, we don't have to give free land, but show us where we can set up. Give us some areas where we can, we can purchase land and build a house. It's not expensive. I mean, in the Gambia, where I, I happen to love, folks don't make more than... I don't know what, $800, $800 a year is their income. You think we can't afford to buy a little bit of land somewhere in there? Of course we can. You know, these countries can benefit from having us there in, in Africa. So many of us are retired with $100,000 a year incomes from being correction officers, you know, or police officers. We have so much money we can carry over there. They don't need China. They don't need Lebanon. They don't need, you know, Europe. They just need us. You know, why don't they bring us home? You know, any Pan-African should be asking that question. Let me just say, I've been brought into a few meetings, as with presidents. African presidents have invited me into meetings, and I have shared this perspective with them. I have asked for dual citizenship. I asked for it in Nigeria. In an African Union meeting in the Gambia, I asked for honorary dual citizenship to the, the to the African Union. Cricket. Well, you, you <laughs> know, uh, Attorney Deirdre, let me let me say this, yes. and then we we yes. take a brief break, and then we got people that have been holding. Um, yes. you, you mentioned something earlier that kind of struck me when you said mm-hmm. that you spoke to the. I think you said the the Queen of Benin or one of the people in leadership. She's a princess. Princess. Her her grandfather was the Oba in 1933. He's the one that started the movement for the return of the bronzes. Okay. So Pedro Leyuola is a prolific artist, just phenomenal. And and just a a charming, down-to-earth sister, okay? Now, now when you said that she understood that uh, and agreed that it was a – a right for the people yeah, in the diaspora. It wasn't. She wasn't speaking for herself. Yeah, no, no, I understand that. Over, yeah. That she understood that, that, that we have a legitimate. Yes, claim. but That's when right. she said that she wasn't in, it basically in control of bringing them there. That, exactly. That the the, the government, nation, the nation, is responsible. Yes. For 
bringing these bronzes. And that, and that's that's what I'm the point I'm raising. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. That in lies the problem in colonialization and neocolonialization, because our people are still under the thumb of these Europeans, and it's causing us problems, whether it's here or whether it's on the continent. I think the majority, you know, I, I was reading this published report, and a, a professor at the University of Benin did a study in 2010 and then did it again in 2021 around the Benin bronzes. Mm-hmm. Uh, 68%, according to this, 68% of the people didn't even know the origin of the Benin bronzes. And this is in mm-hmm. Nigeria or, or, or that area. And then, uh, when he did it again in 2021, he said only 53% knew that the British expedition to the kingdom of Benin, of Benin in, 19, in 1897 resulted in the removal of the objects. So they don't even really know about the objects itself or why it was removed, the majority of the people. So that tells me that the same ignorance that our people suffer here is suffering on the continent. The only difference is, and there's no real difference, is that during that period, the 1600s, 1700s, and, and into the 1800s, you had traders, and I'm talking about merchant traders, and leaderships of those nations that was working with Europeans that made their people victims. See, some of our people don't understand when they look at those people they just see like a whole nation was against them, and it wasn't like that. And I know that you know that. It was the leadership. Well, you're using that word, the term their people, but that actually also is a little misleading, too, because okay. uh, the kingdom of Benin, is they were the Edo people, and they, they, they are still, you know, Edo people. They did not have a practice of enslaving Edo people. They enslaved, they enslaved the, the other nations. And, and, and no, these folks were nations of people. The Edo was a nation, mm-hmm. the Igbo, the Yoruba, these Hausa, these were whole nations. You know, they were grouped together, split, you know, split up to a certain extent to make nations for, for uh, colonial forces. But, um, but so when you say their people, they were not so much enslaving their people. They were enslaving neighboring nations. Well, okay? well, well, yeah. When, well, when I say there, I'm just uh, yeah. When, when I say there, I'm just talking about people that look like them. But uh, right. Well, you know what? I mean, this is tricky, you know, because I, I I I get a chance to speak with these different journalists, and I say, so listen, is the Russia and the Ukraine are they fighting their people? And they're like, no, they're different nations. These are different people. That's right. And we recognize that. We recognize Germany, France, Italy. We don't consider all of them the same people. They're all white, though. But that, why, why, why do all white people have to be the same? No. no I, I, I think that that's, uh, I mean, I understand. Because well, Richard, Richard, hold it. Let, I'm going to take a break, and then we got people that have been waiting. I do want to get their callers on, and then we can, all, we can always go back to conversation. But let me take a brief break. When we come back, uh, we got uh, two calls that have been waiting, and we'll get them right on. Uh, you can join this conversation too by dialing two one five four nine zero ninety. And there's a lot of other things I want to touch, want to touch on with you while you're still with us, uh, Attorney Deidre. Uh, mm-hmm. We're in conversation with Attorney Legal Strategist 
human rights activist, attorney Deirdre Farmer-Paleman. We're talking about the Benin bronzes. Hopefully we can get into some uh, reparation discussion. And also I'm going to throw in some things in reference to the movie The Woman King. Uh, again, you can join the conversation by dialing 215-490-9832. Time for an awakening. We'll be right back. Richard on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at time for an awakening at gmail.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter. Serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today. 484-268-9837. The Digital Plantation. Abibitumi.com. Abibitumi.tv. Abibitumi.tv.com. Abibitumi.store are here for you. You are ready to be free of non-African social media. Don't run from danger, run to safety. Abibitumi.com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations to control your own products. Abibitumi.store is here for you. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I, Black Power, A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. The only word you need to know to join your global you Black family to join your interconnected you Black communities. Escape the digital plantation now. Abibitumi.com, Abibitumi.tv, Abibitumi.tv.com, Abibitumi.store. We are here for you. Escape the digital plantation. A new era, a new phase of the struggle, where we have moved from a struggle for decency, which characterized our struggle for... 10 or 12 years to a struggle for genuine equality. And this is where we're getting the resistance because there was never any intention uh, to go this far. People were reacting to Bull Connor and to Jim Clark rather than acting in good faith for the realization of genuine equality. Do you think white people in this country, and I'm talking about 
non-segregationists, people devoid or thinking they're devoid of racism. Do you have any idea of what they want the Negro to be in America? I think the vast majority of white Americans uh, will go but so far. It's a kind of installment plan for equality. And uh, they are always looking for an excuse uh, to go but so far. And know that this problem needs to be solved and we can't keep relegating it to generation after generation because a few of us got a little money, a few of us got positions, a few of us have wealth while the masses of our people are going steadily down. No one man can rise above the condition of his people. See, brother said responsibility. Is it, is it that we should let them take responsibility to do for us, or should we pool the knowledge that's at the table, the power that's in our community, the wealth that's in our community to change the harsh reality of black life in America? We have to do the job of fulfilling the black agenda. Whites are expert game players in their contests to maintain absolute power. One of the time-honored gimmicks is to point to individual blacks who have achieved recognition. But look at Raft Bunch. Think about Lena Horne or Mary Anderson. Look at Jackie Robinson. They made it as one of those who has made it. I would like to be thought of as an inspiration to our young but I don't want them lied to. Name them for me. The examples of blacks who made it. For virtually everyone you name, I can give you a sordid piece of factual information on how they have been mistreated, humiliated. Not being able to fight back is a form of severe punishment. I come here tonight and plead with you. Believe in yourself and believe that you're somebody. As I said to the group last night, nobody else can do this for us. No document can do this for us. No Lincolnian Emancipation Proclamation can do this for us. No Kennesonian or Johnsonian Civil Rights Bill can do this for us. If the Negro is to be free, he must move down into the inner resources of his own soul and sign with a pen and ink of self-asserted manhood his own emancipation proclamation. Don't let anybody... Take your manhood. Time for an Awakening is a proud part of the Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black digital and podcasting platform. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. Sunday edition is 831 here in the Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Our guest this evening in conversation, a legal strategist, attorney, human rights activist, Deirdre Farmer-Pailman is with us. We're discussing the Benin Bronze 
Uh, we'll be mixing in some conversation on reparations. Uh, I want to talk about some of the things in reference to this movie, The Woman King. All of it. We could talk about it tonight. And you can join the conversation by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We got a couple calls that had been waiting. Uh, let's, let's first go to Toronto, 647. 647, Toronto? Toronto, are you still there? Uh, can you hear me? I'm sorry. I hear you now. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Uh, thank you for uh, uh, giving me the opportunity. I have a couple of questions. Are, uh, uh, is, is the sister saying that uh, the Yorubas uh, in Nigeria and the Shonas in Zimbabwe, are they nations and not a.k.a. ethnic groups or tribes? That's one question. And because, oh, let me say that Kwame Nkrumah pointed out that uh, the problem was not tribes because they are real. The problem is tribalism, uh, you know, because the the uh, imperialists and those that cooperate with the imperialists uh, have used, uh, you know, the whole tribalism. I think that's the point. You you always make Elliot. You know, there's elements among us, you know, for profit or for whatever, for trinkets. Uh, you know, we'll sell, we'll, we'll, history's shown that there's a sellout. We have a sellout element, like every other people have a sellout element. Yes. Uh, that's one question. And uh, uh, do you think that uh, Zimbabwe is uh, uh, open for? Uh, African people from all around the world coming, having a, a homeland there because of supposedly Liberia was supposedly uh, allotted to Africans from the United States, and I think Sierra Leone was 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 uh, allotted to I guess Africans, uh, Africans that were were colonized by by the British. I'll say that and. and uh, could you answer those questions? Yeah, um, can you hear me? Loud and clear. Yes, yes, ma'am. Okay, just making sure. Um, I, I'm not an expert on any of what you you just uh, presented to me. I can only speak from what I know from my slavery uh, work, uh, slavery research. I, you know, I've looked at books that basically laid out that the African, what we call ethnic groups, were were nations. Now. Someone else will have to explain that all to you. But within the kingdom of Benin, I'm aware of the fact that there were separate nations, that, that these ethnic groups, they didn't consider themselves nations. They were there. I mean, I'm sorry, they didn't, they, they didn't group up together and consider themselves one, one group of people, one nation. That's what the colonial forces did. They grouped them up and called them Nigeria, you know, um, and 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 of course, with the a group like the Yoruba, they're they're actually split between the Republic of Benin and and Nigeria, and possibly some other you know nation. I'm not sure, but yeah. So that's Togo, I think, and I think Togo as well. Togo might, yeah, Togo as well. I believe. Yeah. So so, but but at one time they were they were their own nations, and in fact, there is a movement now with some of the Nigerian Yoruba to actually separate themselves out as a nation again, okay? So I, I'm, I've learned about that through this through this particular uh, campaign. 
Uh, as far as Zimbabwe is concerned, I don't know about them and their uh, welcoming folks in uh, for, um, I think you're saying repatriation. I, you didn't use that word, but I think that's what you're talking about. I do know yep. that Ghana does have a right of abode law that is, it doesn't give citizenship, but it gives residency, right? So you can actually establish yourself as a legal resident at the certain point. And I don't really know all of the rights that come with that, okay? Um, but as far as the rest of the African nation is concerned, I mean, the African continent is concerned, um, uh, you, you, there, there are circumstances where they do extend dual citizenship because I know Nigeria recently awarded dual citizenship to a couple of hundred people. Um, most of them, were, I think, were from Lebanon. Um, was that, um, I think there were four, maybe maybe four black people, but none of them were from, you know, you know, none of them were descendants of enslaved Africans, as far as I know. Right. Um, yeah, but Ghana does the right of abode, and I think that's the closest thing to citizenship, besides getting dual citizenship, dual citizenship maybe through marriage, that kind of thing. I think that's all that that's really um, that that's the closest we come today. That's that's what I would love to to see happen though, dual citizenship. And and the way that I presented it to these nations is, you know, with the DNA testing, so many of us, you know, have have an idea of where we're from now. And and I was conscious of the the tribalism because I studied law in Kenya for a little bit. So I you know I knew that there was all of this conflict that was that was based on uh, five tribalism and, and not racism. And, the, and the, their tribalism was as strong as, as our racism, which I found fascinating, you know. But um, so I, I, I realized that, you know, we have to actually do the DNA testing because then folks will really know who their family members are. And interestingly, we've actually, you know, we've been able to reunite families, uh, which is what I consider one of the, the more rewarding parts of the work that I do, that we do at the Restitution Study Group, because so much of this other stuff, you know, doesn't end with a court victory, you know. But when you reunite right. those families, that's real, and the love is there, you know. And part of it comes from the fact that these folks look alike. Well, can I, can I say something? Can I tell you a story? This, this, this is, and I'll close with this. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry if I if, did, did I cut you off. I probably did, but uh, no, you didn't. You didn't. Well, my sister told me a story. She said there was there was a gentleman that was you know he was very interested in her, and you know he did his he laid out his macaroni and his cheese, <laughs> and she said that uh, you know she says that you know there's only one problem, my brother. Uh, you look just like my 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 b- blood brother. You 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 could be my brother's twin. So I don't think you and I we I don't think this is gonna work. You know. Mm, mm. And he was he was a Yoruba man from Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And my grandmother is uh, her last her first name is Olame. Those are two Yoruba names. So that wow. that that is. Uh, <laughs> That uh, my sister always tells that tells me that j- as a, as a big joke. Mm, that's that's deep. That's <laughs> <laughs> real, real. That's real deep. And yeah. I thank you for 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 bringing that out, and I I will definitely keep 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 following you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Thank you. Thank you for your contribution, Thank you. brother. Thank you. Let's go to 267. 267. Hey, uh, good evening, Elliot. Richard, and I want to say good evening to Sister Palman. Is that how you pronounce your last name? Farmer Palman. Oh, okay. Farmer Palman. Uh, I want to say good evening to all of you. And, uh, Sister, I just want to let you know that you are a breath of fresh air because you're saying a lot of things that I'm starting to read. One thing about that Woman King movie, I've never seen it, but it has caused me to pick up books and to read on that area. And uh, are you familiar with the author called Patrick Manning? No. Yeah, he has a book called Slavery, Colonialism, Economic Growth, and Dahomey from 1640 to 1960. And uh, I'm just reading on the different tribes. Now, I did take the uh, DNA test. And I do uh, Yorba is in my background. And I'm glad that you said that because uh, I've I, I mentioned this plenty of times before because, like you said, we are not a – because we're the same skin color, it don't mean we're monolithic. And, but every time I say that, people sort of like say, no, we are. We, we, we're divided by the European. No, no, no. We have different cultures and background, and it's proven by some of the things you've been saying. Because the Dahomey people, they were a specific tribe that, that brutalized a lot of the neighboring tribes from everything that I'm reading right now. And uh, and once they brutalized them, they did sell them into uh, bondage, not only to the British, but I'm reading that it was the Portuguese and the Dutch also. So, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm, so you know, so when I hear... And, and and you said something else that I just smiled about because when I hear Pan African say, you know, it, it's not a movement. Pan Africanism is not a movement because, like you said, those countries over there have not said let let our brothers come back home. We're going to bring, you know, they, I, 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 if it is, I'm unaware of it. You know what I mean? Because most because I talk to a lot of the people off the continent here i do a lot of work with them and they do have a lot of tribal infighting the is one young brother that was an engineer he told me straight up he says my parents do not want me to marry her because she's an Igbo and we're europe europe and they don't want me to marry her so there is a so you you're saying a lot of things that i've always wanted to talk to people i want to get a deeper understanding of it but um, everything wasn't necessarily division on the continent was always not necessarily by the Europeans. I mean, we, mm-hmm. there was infighting there prior. So you know, I, I, I hear so much stuff. I hear people say, "Oh, we just got to think African," and we'll be. Well, wait a minute, that's too broad of a term. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, what are you talking about? We got to think African. I mean, come on. So, you know, mm-hmm. I'm just saying you're a breath of fresh air. I'm I'm learning. I'm learning. I, while you was even talking about the bronzes, uh, the, the Benin bronzes, I, I, I even looked that up while you were talking about them and found out that there are a lot still in the British museums. So, you know, I, I, I say this. I say, like, forget. I mean, yeah, there's some wealth to be had off these bronzes. Yes, that's ours. But also, the biggest thing they can do for us is give us a land of our own and let us prosper from there. 
I mean, you know, you can't put no wealth on that. Just give us our land and let us return back to our, our homeland. So, you know, like reparations, we need a lot of repair. I mean, I don't know how this thing is going to come back. I, you know, I, I don't have too much faith in the unjust system. This is an unjust system that we're under right now. And until we realize how unjust it is, maybe we can start getting that unity that we so, so that we need to start getting our act together because that's the way these people, they, they thrive on division. And they put all the puppets in charge to divide us, to keep us mm-hmm. sick and suffering. But so we, we have a lot of repair to do, but the repair, I believe, starts with us and in our minds. So, you know, I'm just saying you are a breath of fresh air, sister. I'm going to continue listening. I want to hear uh, Elliot talk about the Dahomey tribe uh, and all this. But, no, this book, I'm, I'm, I'm learning a lot out of it. Uh, I haven't got to the chapter on the economy yet, but I'm quite sure if you said the bronzes were – Part of there, that I, 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 I know it's got to be somewhere in here because this book is just uh, fascinating. That's a different group, so That's that's a different group. The the Homi kingdom they will they they existed side by side with the kingdom of Benin. Okay. Um, there's, there's a border between the two, and they even shared some ports. Believe it or not, they didn't seem to fight mm-hmm. with each other. I've never seen a fight between the kingdom of Benin and the kingdom of the Homi, but they are separate entities. Mm-hmm. Okay, I know they mm-hmm. said they were they they really did not like the Halsia. I don't. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, but the Halsia they they and the Oyu they had battles with them because I right. read that. Right. No, but uh, no. yeah, not the but, kingdom uh, of the no, kingdom powerful for them to be. Okay. they were very powerful at that time. Yeah. Okay. They had well, a lot I'm of weapons to... too. Because <laughs> I always thought the homie and Benin were basically side by side and p- almost part of the same kingdom. Like I said, I'm just starting to pick up books and read on this stuff. So you are enlightening me, and I just mm-hmm. appreciate your time for coming mm-hmm. on here. Thank you. All right. Thank you, El. Thank you for your contribution. Let's go to 602. 602. Yes, Brother Elliot, uh, Brother uh, uh, Richard, uh, and good evening to your guests and good attorney. Yes, sir. Brother Marcus. Yeah, yeah. You know, what we have to remember, do you know, um, is that, you know, Pan-Africanism is really a reset um, ideology. See, this, this that's something that's coming from the 15th century. I think it started with Elmut Blyden, you know, Elmut Blyden, Wilmot Blyden. You know, and then people like Garvey came and developed it. So this is a recent ideology, ideological thought when it comes to, you know, organizing and unifying as black people. And um, I want to say this here, too, that the African in America, it, it, is, it is so the African-American, the one born here in America, they, you are the most detribalized Africans on the planet because of the environment that you um you were brought up in. You see, in in America, they, because of the oppression that you face from the European, the blatant oppression, 
you develop a racial consciousness. You know you're black. See, you, nobody have to tell you, oh, you're, you're black. You know what I'm saying? Because the white man makes sure he say, look, I'm going to treat you this way. So you develop, your psychology develop different than other black people around the, 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 the globe. See? Um, and you are the glue, really. You are the missing link that Africa needs. You see? You know, mm-hmm. that's why they really don't want no unity between the African here and the, and the continent. Because the detribalized African is the one who is the jail. You see, mm-hmm. we don't have it, that tribalism like they have in Africa. You see, mm-hmm. but what we have here is more, you probably have more nationalism, you know, well, I'm Jamaican, I'm Haitian, I'm this, I'm that. You know, we have that issue. But, you know, we are moving in the path, in the right direction. And in a matter of time, we'll get there. You know, it's going to take a little time, but we're going to get there. So, you know, I'm not... Uh, you hear wait, 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 no, no, say that again. Uh, uh, repeat that. You, yeah, we lost. So I'm saying that, you know, we, 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 we just have to keep on keeping on, you know what I'm saying? Uh, you know, don't despair because we're mm-hmm. getting there, you know. Mm-hmm. We're going to get there eventually as a, as a race of people because mm-hmm. it's racial, economic cooperation is our only salvation as a people. Mm-hmm. Anyway, mm-hmm. that's just my little contribution. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for your contribution, bro. No. Let's go to 404. 404? 404? Hey, 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 Ellie, how you hear me, man? I hear you. Y'all hear me? Uh, yes, sir, man. Hey, hey, y'all know that the Smithsonian Institute uh, just came out uh, uh, a couple of days ago and said they're going to give all the stuff they took from Nigeria and uh, I think Tobo and Benin. We just, so yeah, we were just talking about it. So, yes, sir. I mm-hmm. think I sent it to you. But I got this thing right here. Y'all might not like it, man. Since they, they stole uh, us from over there, right? And they stole uh, artifacts. So now, since they're giving all them artifacts back, I would say this, man. Y'all just going to sound radical. I know when I say something, people going to talk. All right? So since we know there were some people that were stolen over there, from over there, over here, right? And so these damn descendants of them, of them stolen people, nine times out of ten, are the one that's terrorizing these neighborhoods, right? Y'all follow my logic, Richard, right? So since these descendants of the stolen people over right here terrorize the neighborhood, okay, and look like we perplexed, we don't know what to do. So my thing is, I tell everybody, all these children that's running around bad as hell, they terrorize the neighborhood. We shipping their ass back to Africa, man. Okay, <laughs> send them, send them back over there. And they so big and bad. All right, don't put them in the city. Put them in uh, uh in the woods with them lions. They so damn big and bad. Let them go fight them lions, man. All right, that's my that's my solution to the problem, man. All right, so right, tell them all. Make a national damn uh uh uh, uh, uh declaration. You terrorize the hood. You are going back where you come from. Okay, back home to Africa and fight the damn lies so we tired of y'all, man. Simply that, man. Oh, my. I love it. <laughs> oh, is, is that all? 
you wanted to say? No, no, I think that, that that's um that's that's a fascinating concept. Um well listen, the the uh, okay, there's a lot of issues that you brought up. I'm not gonna get into them all, but I do wanna say that the bronzes are are being uh returned by the by the Smithsonian, but the Smithsonian is not the institution that took them. They they actually purchased they were given to the Smithsonian by rich donors, in, in particular the Hirschhorn family and the Disney family. Okay, they actually purchased them probably from the uh, the first folks who bought them from the uh, British Navy officers. Okay, so um, yeah, so the Smithsonian was not uh, they were not the folks who did the punitive expedition. But one thing I do want to say about the one punitive expedition that did take place, it was catastrophic for the Kingdom of Benin, but, uh, you know, folks in, in wanting to return these bronzes to them are overlooking the fact that the Kingdom of Benin subjected people to 300 years of punitive expeditions. This is a, what, just what happened to them one time that they, you know, that they want a tremendous amount of sympathy for, they did two people for 300 years, and that, that was 300 years of enslaving us. And, and during that time period, I should mention, a century and a half, they were mostly only enslaving women, okay, because they wanted the men to work their uh, palm oil fields. So it was the women that were being enslaved. And another detail that I should mention just about the culture, and the, the, uh, the Caribbean brother was just speaking, I don't know if anyone has ever done a study, and please let me know, but the, the cultures, the different cultures of slavery, the way slavery was practiced, for example, in the Caribbean versus the United States, we were bred here. This was a breeder nation. Um, uh, so I, I think there may be things about our, the kind of trauma we experience that, that, that more, are more consistent with maybe rape culture. In, in the Caribbean, you know, folks maybe were living until 30 years old, but it was mostly men that were enslaved there. There was hardly any women. So mostly men, no women, very not, not many people being reproduced there. They would just work them to death. Work them to death, and yes. And replace them. That's why there were so many that went to the Caribbean and the Brazil. They worked them to death. In fact, interestingly, in Brazil, you know, the DNA test was done by 23andMe in a, in a group of scholars where they figured out where folks are from Nigeria. And what they figured out is that of those, most of, most of the population from the Bight of Benin went to Brazil. They barely have any Nigerian DNA today. Now, I don't know if the folks who have the DNA weren't willing to participate, but these folks were pretty thorough with their DNA testing. And they, they, they cannot, they really cannot find very much, uh, Nigerian DNA, what they say is that there's a lot of, there was an effort of like sort of working this African blood out of the population. Okay, I don't know, but I, I know there's some dark-skinned black folks in Brazil. I'm, I'm wondering if they were tested. In fact, I'm, I'm actually trying to test some myself to see if they match up with Nigeria because I, I find that particular result hard to believe. Anyway, with that said, you know, uh, we have our bad people over here. 
and 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 we have our bad folks over there. And I think this example of the present day trafficking is very helpful for us so that we can understand what was happening back in the day. It wasn't that long ago, and, and I believe the trafficking culture now in Benin, Benin City got all their lessons from the people who trafficked in the past. It's nothing new. And, and note, in Nigeria, the slave trade was practiced legally, like it's, it's sort of like an underground legal thing. It's hard to explain, but they, were, they were, actually had certificates to, to engage in the slave trade up until the 1950s, okay? So they were engaged in the slave trade. It was within Africa, but it was a slave trade. It wasn't transatlantic, but it was trading from one nation to another. And folks were very upset that they didn't get to, that they had to stop uh, engaging in that trading in the 1950s, okay? All right, I said enough. <laughs> oh, Richard. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, it's it's um, interesting. Um, I'm trying to. Well, Richard, um, let me, let, before you say that, let me, um, uh, Attorney Deirdre talked about the enslavement here, and it was different than in the islands where the mortality rate was very low, uh, and it was a brutal enslavement. In fact, some of our ancestors that would run away and constantly run away and be disruptive on the plantations, they was either sold to the islands or to Louisiana, places like that where they had a lot of the sugar, and that was a brutal enslavement. Talk about it, some of your research that you've done in reference to that, Richard, and what the attorney did just said. Well, I'm, you know, as I was listening to it, the, the point that I would make is that both, and I'm, I'm more the southern states of the United States and the islands in Brazil were slave societies. Um, and I think that a lot of times that, and the way I'm interpreting and, and I'm looking, you know, for Deirdre, you know, correct me if from your, your research, the difference between a slave society and society with slaves. The northern part um, especially after uh, in the northern colonies and therefore states started giving gradual abolition, state slavery was um, it wasn't it wasn't by law, but it wasn't the major economic engine of the uh, the political economy. But in the Caribbean, before the British um, ended, um, um, ab- you know, the abolition of slavery. Um, the society, most of their colonies were slave slave societies. The major um, political economic relationship of the labor that they were engaged in was to produce um, a, a product for trade. Um, and because of that, it was harsh. And I'm I'm saying that it was equal to South Carolina, Virginia, um, um, Georgia. Um, Mississippi later, um, and well, all those southern states, and the and the point of the southern states was to try to expand it westward, and that's where a lot of the the major bases of the differences between you know that creates the, the whole thing between the South and the North that moves to the um, Civil War. Um, would you agree that we should um, look at it from that, or did you get to see it from that perspective of the difference between a slave society? And and the impact, and yes, United States did breed because of its, it, it provided, you know, and you raised something earlier as far as 
um, I think it was the the point where you were saying, I think that was South Carolina, so Charleston, South Carolina. Well, mm-hmm. they were bringing in enslaved people, but they were doing it illegally after 1808. I mean, a large number of those who were coming in into those ports, and that's why in South Carolina specifically, um, where um, it was illegal, um, illegal trade that the federal system didn't knew about, but didn't um, what's that word? Didn't enforce the, mm-hmm. the, the the trade to be stopped of importation, and that's why compared to say New York or um, Boston, which were areas where slave um you know the trade would come human trafficking would um come in earlier once 1808 they didn't have it as much as in south carolina because south carolina that's south being a slave society so i'm i'm just making a point that the caribbean brazil were slave societies Mm -hmm. um, compared to societies with slaves you know what? I, I have not actually examined uh, the slave trade from those perspectives, so I, I really can't really I can't really speak on 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 that perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do want to mention um, just something that was mentioned earlier about you know the the statistics on the study of uh, folks in in uh, Africa and particularly I think it was the uh, Benin City that don't know about the origins of the Benin bronzes mm-hmm. and, and, and don't know anything about the British uh, expedition. Um, th- one of the things that there's, a, there's an African critic um, uh, spoke about uh, with, res- with reference to these bronzes, he doesn't think they should come back because he actually doesn't think that uh, they will be safe in, in Nigeria. Uh, but he also, and he points out that feeling, he has that feeling for a few reasons. And one of them is that uh, although the the um, Nigerian government talks about wanting them because of the history, uh, even the Edo people wanting them for the the history purposes that they serve, um, they don't they don't actually have history as a, 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 an academic subject matter in the country Nigeria. They don't study the history. The, the, the kids there there are some kids that go to the museum. I think in the in the last year, maybe they had about 10,000 students that went to the, the museum. 50,000 people altogether, 40,000 of them were tourists. So, wait, you know, this not... Hmm? Wait a minute. <laughs> Repeat that again, Attorney Deirdre, that yeah, let me they don't have history as an academic subject? That's right. Now, listen, uh, this is coming from... Uh, yeah, this is, yeah, this is coming from a, a Nigerian... Um, uh, a critic. Okay. He's, not, he's Nigerian uh, uh, journalist. Uh, but, I mean, he points out a lot of things. Another thing that he points out is, you know, just with reference to the return of the bronzes, that the, the, the Nigeria has a hard time uh, keeping money from being looted. And, and, and lately we know oil from being looted. Airlines are not doing business, so we they have a hard time getting repatriating their dollars from the flights coming back, you know, there's just a hard time keeping track and retrieving uh, one's wealth. You know, that, that there's a fear that these bronzes will just be relooted, but maybe this time by Nigerians is, is, is what's being said. Um, 
But uh, in particular, I want to say the whole thing about the, the history. Yeah, this is what's said. Now, that may be the reason why these young people don't know these two details, because history is not um, a major subject. But over here, you know, we teach history, and, and uh, you know, a lot of uh, folks wouldn't be able to tell you a whole lot about exactly. American history. Wow. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah. Therein lies the problem, which you just stated. History is right, not even a so, subject. Know, the, the scholar I'm talking about is a Yodeli Okunfolomi, and I'm, I'm taking a chance saying his name, but Okunfolomi is his last name. Um, but yeah, that's the story. <laughs> and isn't isn't it um, also true, as, or and I wanted to, I guess, get your feedback that right now, even though um, it is um, the Benin, the Kingdom of Benin, and the and the nation of Nigeria, really are have, having their own battle of who should receive the bronzes. And that was, I mean, even, you know, that was um, one thing that I picked up. It, but it, well, picked yeah. up that same thing? Not, not exactly. Let me just say, the, the, and that was really spelled out to me as well. No, the, the nation and the kingdom of Benin are working together. Mm. Okay? The conflict is with this Edo state. Obasaki is the governor of Edo State. And interestingly, when the current family was removed from power, when the, when the British colonized, Obasaki's family became the kings of Benin, the king of Benin. Um, so, so he's coming from the second line of royalty that was in command, but at some point, I don't really know when, they returned to, uh, maybe it was 1933, uh, they returned back to the the leadership from the original bloodline of the royal family in the kingdom of Benin. So Obasaki may, you know, I don't know, there may be some personal resentment, but, you know, just the sense that I would have been the king kind of thing. Mm. Um, so he is the one that has the conflict. And what has happened is that he's worked with a group of, um, of, um, Businessmen, okay, they put together a public-private partnership to 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 retrieve the Benin bronzes, okay, and um, so they're building a massive museum, and that's the museum that the Smithsonian's bronzes are supposed to go to. That's not the museum that the the nation is building with the Kingdom of Benin. They mm. have a whole separate museum that's maybe across the street from the other one mm. that's being built. On the kingdom's grounds, okay, so the pal- on the grounds of the palace, that's a whole separate museum. So two museums are going up to house these Benin bronzes. Now, who's in the partnership with the state? Believe it or not, the British Museum. They're partners mm-hmm. with the right. state. In the build- and these are things people don't know. So someone mentioned earlier, well, the kingdom of uh, the, the British Museum holds a lot of bronzes. It's true, they do. And they don't seem to have an interest in returning them. And they may not return their bronzes. Uh, but, uh, but you know, the, the news, you know, the, the, the kingdom is, you know, calling on the British Museum to return the bronzes since, since the USA is returning bronzes. But the British Museum is protected by a law in the U.K. that specifically that it touches on them that, does, that allows them to not, be required to return the bronzes. Now, in the United States, we have museums that have no interest in returning the bronzes. 
And one of the things that my organization has done was to really try to reach out to those institutions, to be honest with you. Um, it's a lot easier to work a deal with them than to, to than work a deal with folks who have developed some sense of loyalty to Nigeria. Um, these folks don't care about the slave trade issue. They don't care that these bonds belong to us. But we know that, um, for example, folks who might have an interest in buying those bronzes or selling them are going to be concerned about descendants of enslaved Africans who might be suing anybody that ends up with those bronzes, okay? And so that's one of the important factors behind pursuing litigation because we want folks to know you're not going to be comfortable with these bronzes because this, now it might not be us, but it's going to be somebody who's a descendant from these uh, folks who were enslaved that will come after anybody who owns a bronze, anybody who should at some point in the future end up owning a bronze. And, of course, with this public-private partnership that the state is forming, um, Obasaki and his folks, um, there is some concern that bronzes will be sold. <clears throat> they, want, they want bronzes back before they even start building the museum. Right now what you have there is a big hole in the ground, but they want bronzes returned before they build anything. Once again, the museum is not due to be completed until 2025, but we're sending $20 million worth of bronzes back tomorrow. Okay? We don't know where they're going to be. And that's one of the things that the judge got wrong in his decision. He's telling us these bronzes are going to that museum because that's what the Smithsonian says, but guess what? The Smithsonian's been lying about a whole lot of things, <laughs> okay? They're lying about that, too. There is no museum yet. They have a name. They have a, 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 an architectural plan, but they don't have a museum yet. Did, if, I, if I may ask, did, in that ruling, did the judge make the connection or reaffirm, reinforce the connection that um, Af um, those uh, African descendants of, of the people of Benin are truly the people of the, I mean, you know, I'm trying to make this as a question. Did he acknowledge that the, that the, the connection between those who were enslaved and those who were, who came from Benin in his ruling or was that, did that have to occur at all? No, he didn't, he didn't really doesn't even have to go that far. I mean, you know, the, there is, there is some issue around what we call standing. Right. And I, to be honest with you, I, I, I cannot even articulate that because I, I can't quite figure out what it is that they're trying to say. You know, there's always some issue with standing with us in the court, and, right. and I can't quite figure out why it is that we cannot be in the same position that other people seem to be right. in, right. claiming ownership of anything. Right. Um, right. But, you know, we are going, uh, we're going to work on that and, and, and figure out what it, is that, what it is that he's trying to say, you know. Um, I, the, the big issue is, you know, how do you connect yourself specifically to the the treasure, you know? And, you know, are you claiming ownership? Are you claiming some money that's due to you? You know, what is it that you're claiming? And and honestly, it, it looks as if the judge kind of looks beyond what we're actually asking for, which is clearly, you know, we're claiming ownership because we're claiming to be the people who are descended from the folks who made the bronzes. And uh, in, yeah. in, doing, in doing that, excuse me, but in doing that, mm -hmm. is that stating standing as you see it? 
that by well, claiming that we're we're the, uh, the ownership is because we're connected to those people um, would from a legal who made them? In your who mind. made them? Huh? Yes, who, who made them? Because we we made them too. You right. know it was you know you know somebody somebody brings the artist and the other person brings the material. Well, we bought the material. They bought the artist to melt you know to melt the material. But the material they would not have had the material if if we were not uh, sold. You know, this is the only way they would have made those bronzes because they had no access to that metal anymore. The trade route was closed with Northern Africa. There would be no Benin bronzes from the 1500s to the to the 1800s, but for the fact that they enslaved us. And and does and, and I apologize for it, but I'm, I'm getting excited now. But does that and I'm, and I'm ignorant of the law. But does that I mean by stating that? Um, because you know this, because this nebulous thing, um, and on both sides, right? Because you had mentioned about the board of regency, and even um, you know how black folks in America, um, their kind of positions, whether it be the communication system or the or bureaucrat, but by creating standing or by stating that our where we have co ownership because we were the people brought. Doesn't that, in relationship to American law, puts us in a different position than just um, chattel property when we we declare that we have ownership to items that is related to another nation state? I don't know if that's making this just. Well, you know, yes, I, I don't really know. I don't fully understand what you mean. Uh, honestly, um the bottom line is this, it, it, this really doesn't have a whole lot to do with another nation state. It's because these bronzes are not in Nigeria's perspective. We're not suing Nigeria. Right. This is, Nigeria is not a, a defendant in the case. And, but we're saying and we're connected to the people from not, from that that area, regardless of right. the ethnic group. Right. Because we're connected, we are those people. And because we are those people, even though we're here, we're in, and we those people, we the people who made these items that are here, we're entitled to ownership of those items. Is that exactly the- because we're the heirs? We are the heirs right, of the people right. who made them. Now, let me just say this: Are we all the heirs? No. Uh oh. No, we're not all because some of us probably are not. We don't know that for sure. Right. The problem is the way that the slave trade was practiced. You know, we right. didn't, we, we, we were not, we didn't, you know, unlike Europeans who were migrating here at the, immigrating here at the same time, we didn't get passports and visas. You can't, you can't, we didn't even get to have our names on the, on the, uh, the ship records. We were just numbered, you know, we were just cargo. Right. You know, um, so, you know, but that's not our fault. And is that where the DNA comes in to assist in identifying if you were, um, you know, and I think one of the callers may reference, and I think you, Elliot, may reference of, of being, you know, in checking the DNA, that it um, possibly from that area, the question is, you know, by DNA, um, that would, uh, Sister Deidre, that would go into the point of not all, but there are specific people who can be able to trace their lineage by virtue of DNA. Is it, it, it does that line up to what you're saying? Yeah, and you know, 
now that I think about it, that might be why some of us are just not so excited about this because I don't know what the percentage of us are that have taken these DNA tests. I mean, if it's if it's only five percent of us, then you know you got you know ninety five percent of the people who are just like, well, this don't mean a thing to me because I don't know anything about where I'm from in Africa. You know, I don't know what the percentage is of us who have taken the test. But what I do know is that ninety three percent of us descendants from uh, enslaved Africans here have Nigerian DNA. So that's just a large number of of uh, of African Americans. You know, eighty two percent of Caribbeans, right? Particularly Jamaicans have that DNA from Nigeria. So it's a lot of us um, that that can trace ourselves to the region, right? Mm-hmm. But as I tried to say twice already, some of us can trace ourselves to the specific ports that were controlled by the Oba of Benin, and my DNA does that. It connects me to the Lagos port and the Wari port. And uh, our um, one of our experts, uh, Paul Lovejoy, speaks very much about the Wari port slave trade controlled by the kingdom of Benin as, as well as the logo, Lagos. And I mean, there's a, a lot, and if you look at the papers that, uh, that he submitted are online, just so you know, you can go to our website, um, rsgincorp.com, and you can pull the papers, but he explains all the, the um, lagoon ports from Lagos to the east to Focados were controlled by the Oba of Benin, right? That's, that's everything. That's everything. They controlled all of the, the ports. They were very powerful. They had weapons, and they were, they were south of uh, Nigeria, you know, so they, they, they controlled the whole area. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, Tony Deirdre, um, before we wind things down, uh, I want mm-hmm. you to talk a little bit about the uh, – because you're the co-chair of the Organization of Tribal Unity, uh, to help mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, reunite uh, families. Um, now, exactly. after you take after you take the tests and get your results back, what's the next steps? What do you uh, kind of walk me through this? What do you, what do you do, and how have you uh, done this for other folks? How, you know, what's the procedure? I'm just curious. Well, well, okay. I mean, in general, when someone takes a test, the first thing they they want to see, uh, and let me just say this: if you do the ancestry DNA test or the twenty three and Me DNA test, uh, those are the ones I'm most familiar with. Uh, you will be able to find your actual family members in uh, if you allow your uh, the testing service to allow you to match up with other people. And so, now, you know, one of the first things folks do is run through that section of the of the, uh, the the website, and they look to see if they know any of the cousins. Well, what we've done is to ensure that we can make a connection to people who have their ethnic identity, their ethnic language, and their ethnic dances, and all of that to come along with having not been enslaved, right? Um, we, we we've identified folks in that kind of situation. We and they they've actually been willing to take the DNA test so that they could connect to their family who have been uh, enslaved in the transatlantic slave trade. Um, so most recently, we reunited um, a, a sister with 
a brother who took the test. The brother is the first cousin of the former president of the Gambia, Yaya Jemay. Um, I was there for a festival, a Futampas, uh festival, which is, a, um, what do you call this? It's a, a rite of passage. And this particular uh, cousin of the, of the president actually conducts the whole rite of passage ceremony. Um, but he took the DNA test. And, um, and uh, for quite a number of years, he just really was hesitant to meet his cousin. And, and, uh, and I, he took this test in 2016, and, and it's been years, all these years, that she's been trying to meet with him. And finally, this summer, they got to meet each other. Um, he just finally gave in. She was like, I'm here and I'm coming, you know. So we, we actually sponsored her, and she went in to meet him. And he, I mean, he was so moved. I mean, it's, we're going to put together a documentary because uh, it really was very special. Um, he actually, and this is the thing a lot of us don't know, uh, African folks know the story of their family member that was enslaved. Okay. They know the story because the story was passed down from one generation to the next, how so-and-so was enslaved. And so he was able to sit her down and tell her the story. No, wait, wait, wait a minute. Hold it. Let me get this clear. You're not talking about diaspora, uh, our folks in the diaspora. You're talking about the family that's still on the continent or uh, kind of schooled on. Yeah, no, this is a family that's still living in the Gambia. They have never left. Okay. But once again, this is this is the family of the former president of the Gambia, Yaya Jemay, his family, the Jemay family. Um, they they've never left. Uh, they've been living in Kanalai. They are Jola. Um, that's their ethnic group. Um, and you know the Jolas are split between Senegal and um, uh, Guinea-Bissau. Um, so, uh, or Casamance, I believe they're, they're sort of, they're split, they're split up because of the colonial divvying up of, um, mm-hmm. of Africa, but you know, it's still one, it's still one, um, ethnic group. No, but what, no, well, but, but, but my question is through your work of reuniting mm-hmm. families from what you just stated, that a lot of the family on the continent can kind of pinpoint when their certain family members was brought over here. Is what you is that what you just said? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. They can. They have the stories. It's not. This is not ancient history. I mean, this is the thing. This is, I mean, it is ancient history, but it's not. You know, I mean, th- their memory goes much further back than that. Okay. You know, this is only four hundred. This is only three hundred years in some instances. Or less. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they know the stories that they know. He, like I said, he was able to tell specifically. And let me tell you, these two look so much alike. It's just amazing. And the two of them were just like blown away when they met each other, how much they look alike. They, you know, their facial features are nearly identical. You know, they're just different complexions. That's about it. But they look exactly alike. And, and that's what's fascinating. There are some folks, some family members we reunited and they're they're still engaged in the same types of occupation, um, you know. That you know, folks who are hardcore business folks who into marketing. They these are skills that that they retain even when they came here. When the families were divided up, they still maintain you know certain values, which is which is fascinating. You know, this is what we're seeing. Um, 
Yeah, this is this is the amazing thing. And and once again, a lot of them really do still look alike. You know, four four generations away, you know, this is the division and they still they still look alike and still do a lot of the same things. Yeah. Yeah, well, I I'm you you know I'll be in touch with you because I got all the I did take the ancestry DNA. So they Well, gave- let me just share something with you. One of the things that we're doing now with the people that we test to, to kind of help folks find the African national mm-hmm. is that if you, if you do your name search in uh, like, you know, not, there was a time when you could not do a search for your cousins, but now you can do it. And so if you throw in like OTU for the organization of tribal unity, OTU in your, in your search for the, for the cousin, if you look, then you will probably pull up, if, if if we're in your database, in your cousin list, you can pull up one of our uh, folks who took the test. And and what we try to do is um, connect you so that you can um, so that you can learn something about your family. You know, your family in Africa. They they do it for us. And I tell you, uh, you know, it's not a whole lot of we 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 try to test as often as possible, but we don't. Yeah, we we we're not on the continent uh, uh, testing now, especially not now with um, COVID. Mm-hmm. So our database is kind of fixed at this time, but it's a lot of work, you know, for a lot of them to speak to, you know, I'll give you an example. Sometimes folks have, you know, like 3,000 cousins, you know, or more, you know, to the more people who take the test, the more cousins there are. Um, so it's a lot of work for the, the person who, the African person, and especially a lot of resources for them because they don't, you know, in a, in a nation, for example, in the Gambia, where your income at that time, when we first did the testing, was probably more like 400 Now it's gone up. It's maybe about anywhere between six and $800 a year. It's costly to be communicating with folks a lot. But, you know, we, we are trying to figure out ways to, you know, to facilitate the communication. But that's, I don't know. I don't know if I, I, I laid out how it works. But you take your test. You look for, you can, you can probably do your own little search within the database to, to figure out, you know, who, how, you can see what your DNA percentages are. And you might be able to find someone with, a, with a, you know, this 100% African, for example. You know, you might be able to find that. But it can, be, it can take a little while. But initially, when you, you, you can just do that OTU search and see if anyone is, is there. Um, uh, but, yeah, so, yeah, after that, we, we will introduce you. We'll make sure you get introduced, and, you know, you can, and you communicate. Good. You know? uh, and then if you ever go to Africa, if you ever go there, then that's, you know, then you have the situation like the sister just did, that, that we will make sure that you get a chance to meet them. We will do our best to help. Well, so we won't be able to sponsor everyone, but, you know, if you're there, you know, we, we might be able to help out. I'll be in touch with you in reference to that because I got all my particulars now. I got to, uh, I want to go a little bit further. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, before mm-hmm. we leave tonight, uh, you know what? Well, we really didn't uh, talk about a lot of that movie, but let, let's go back to uh, before we go tonight, uh, leave, leave the air tonight. Uh, let's touch base a little bit on uh, the reparations front because I did mm-hmm. see... Um, and I didn't get the chance to to watch it all. I saw that you had met with the uh, the California uh, the reparations committee uh, 
uh, Reverend uh, Brown, Amos Brown, was on with us. I guess it was about two months ago, wasn't it, Richard? Yeah, yeah, about two months. And uh, you know, talk- oh yeah, yeah. I spoke about the corporations. I mean, we're still, you know, we're still engaged in our effort uh, to hold corporations complicit. We're developing cases against them. We are meeting with lawyers, and they're presenting to us the legal theories that they might approach. So we we are, I would say, in case development around corporations complicit in slavery. Uh, what we've done in the past is we we sued 20 companies. A few of them went defunct before the litigation was over. That was narrowed down to about 17 companies. But um, our goal was to create a trust fund for the benefit of all descendants of enslaved Africans. And, in fact, that's what we plan to do even with the Benin Bronzes, to create a trust fund so that it's in trust for all of us. Um, Let me ask you a question. With, with, oh, great. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Finish your thought. No, I mean basically that—that's where we are. We're—we're we're, we're now we—we we, we had a, a legal success where we got the court to hold that companies that lie about their role in slavery are liable for fraud or consumer fraud, and so that's where we are. We—we we are looking at cases of fraud and consumer fraud um, involving these uh, com- the companies that you'll see us sue next. And that's, that's, that's basically the update. <laughs> Attorney, um, for somebody that was a young law student, uh, when Johnny Cochran pulled you in, that's what you said on when you was with us before, to, to now, and you've been in this fight now over 20 years, um, did you, do you think it's picking up steam? Uh, did you envision it being like this? Uh, what was your vision of it when you first got into it, and when you and looking at perspective of now, saying, "Wow, I, I didn't think it would, it would be like this," or or well, uh, why is this too slow? I, how how are you seeing this? Well, I what I what I anticipated was um, more unity. Okay. Um, you know, um, and amongst us. Okay. I what I have learned is that we actually are our own obstacles in, in, mm. our, in our securing justice. Right. You know, there's a competitiveness. Um, just, you know, I mean, I, you know, I was, I was the new kid on the block pursuing this work, and uh, I think there were probably a lot of elders or older folks who maybe felt threatened rather than, you know, embrace me and support me in what I was doing. It's different from what they were doing, but, you know, they engaged in divisive activities. And, and you know, believe it or not, it's not any different with the Benin Bronzes. You know, I mean, it's a, and it's a lot of the same folks. You know, they just take the opposing side. But I also, I, 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 I had the opportunity to observe a video where someone who was an infiltrator in the, during the COINTELPRO era, said, you know, when he was in the room at uh, doing his COINTELPRO pro work, he said maybe 50% of the people in the room were doing the same thing he was doing. And so I, I, I understand that with these organizations, you often have, you know, 50% of people in the room who are there to make sure nothing happens. And, and that's what we see. A lot of things don't happen because folks are in the room making sure nothing happens. And that's one of the reasons why we don't, we don't even have a membership, you know. We don't have a membership organization. That's why you can see us file a lawsuit 
when we decide it's time to file a lawsuit, you know, because we file it, we do our own research, and we and we and we pay for it ourselves. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. So nobody can tell us what to do. There's not going to be somebody in the room saying that we shouldn't file the lawsuit. You know what I mean? Which is what I see in a lot of these groups. Things that they should be working on, they don't do. It's that it's because of that that operative that's in the room. That's how that's how I see it. I, well, I can't imagine people working against their own interests. So when I even when I hear folks attacking me on this work, it, what it mostly does is it reveals to me who that person is who's being paid to be in the room to be disruptive. It's disruptive behavior, you know? And in, I don't believe that folks are just acting against their own interests just like that. Mm. There's more to it. And, and if that's not, and if they're not being paid to be in the room, they may as well be because they're just as disruptive. Um, no, I just try to do things as independently as possible to avoid that kind of nonsense. That's really the bottom line. You know, I, I, I am independently wealthy. I'm just going to be real with y'all. <laughs> okay. So there's some things that I can do on my own. Okay. Um, that's the only reason why I've been able to do this work. As if, you know, if I had to rely on an income, I don't think I'm employable, to be honest. You know, okay. if I don't work for myself, I don't think anyone would want to hire me. They'd be afraid of me, you know, and that's okay. But, um, that's how we that's how we operate here, and we and we form coalitions with with like-minded organizations, but we do not have a membership organization. You know, one of the things about I, what I learned from Callie House, who was the uh, the one of the first leaders of a mass movement for reparations, where I learned from what happened to her the danger of having an organization, really even the danger of doing fundraising for anything. So, you know, we're really careful when it comes to anything that we raise funds for because, you know, she was she was arrested for um, mail fraud because she used the mail to raise money to fight the reparations movement. And, of course, she was convicted of mail fraud because they said she was raising money to pursue a cause that had no possibility for success. Yeah, that's that just... was her. That was why she was convicted. And then Marcus Garvey. Yes took over her chapters. I don't know if you guys heard about that, but yeah. Mary Frances Berry talked about it in her book, My Face is Black is True. Mm-hmm. Marcus Garvey took over her chapters with his movement, and then he ended up arrested and imprisoned for mail fraud. You know, So these membership organizations, they, they somehow managed to get someone to you know, indict the, the leader of the movement, and that's how they... That's how they and, you know, shut down the movement, you know. So I, we decided we're not going to do membership. Um, and um, and mostly we fund everything ourselves. We we did get funded for the first time last year. And I, I, I tell you, my, my accountant and I are like best friends now because we don't do anything without, you know, getting, getting the accountant's advice on everything because we don't want any of this nonsense to happen to us. Yeah, I agree. Listen, I'm glad that you, uh, you know, Richard, you know, we talk about this a lot and sometimes we, we get callers to, uh, they call in and they talk about how our people can't get it right and, and, uh, disparaging remarks. But I, I'm glad that, uh, you said what you said, attorney, uh, Deirdre, because for somebody that's out there doing the work and you see that when you're in rooms, you got several people 
that can be working against the progress of our people. That shows why sometimes it's difficult for us to move forward when you got, I mean, we know we, we didn't, we've had an open enemy. It's been an enemy of our people since we've been here. But when you got mm-hmm. our people that look like us working against your interests and some of them close friends, I mean, we've, we've seen some of our icons that have given their lives for the masses of our people that, that had a wound laid against them by people that were supposed to be friends in their organization. Mm-hmm, so th- this right. is, this is, that's this right. is, this is a uh, serious and it's deep and it's something we got to figure out strategies to work around, which you just told me and Richard in the listening audience is that uh, having a non-member organization is a strategy to work around some of this other foolishness. So I, I'm just glad that you shared that with us tonight. Oh, uh, let, let me, we got a call that just jumped on. Let me go to 215, 215. Hey, but uh, yeah, I was, I actually was on at the beginning. Like I caught in at uh, at seven when y'all came on and stuff. I'm, I'm, some, I'm uh, I, I was waiting for a good while, but that's all good. Those are good. I just want to say that, uh, uh, to hello to you, brother Elliot and brother Rich and sister Deja. I appreciate the good information that you got on tonight, sister Deja. You gave, some, you gave you. a good. You, you welcome, my sister. You gave a good balance, view of everything, and I agree with brother Ralph and stuff. That when he, his commentary about about you, about you gave a true, you know, real, realistic view of the of the motherland because you know, yeah, yeah, but like for example, sister Deja, like you were saying, if, if our sisters and brothers and Africa, especially the government leaders in the different African countries, like you said, they should be calling for us. You know, to have homes over there, to, to invest over there. Because me, on a on a personal note, like you said, say you're independently wealthy. Well, I'm not independently wealthy yet, but I do have, you know, individual investments in, in different African countries, you know. I got little mm-hmm. investments in, in certain African countries. And, you know, like, like you know, one of the things that really always struck me, Sister Deja and Brother Ellie and Brother Richard, is when you watch the Olympic Games, you always see these Europeans, they got the dual citizenships. They might be... American here in America, you know, representing the American Olympic team, but then they, but then, but then they be have dual citizenship with their home country in in England or, or France or Italy or whatever like that. And I be saying to myself, why can't the brothers be the same thing? Why can't the, a brother like 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 let me use LeBron, LeBron James example, the basketball player, but why can't LeBron be have a dual citizenship with Nigeria or or Africa or either not Liberia, Uganda? You know what I'm saying? Something like that, like like the Caucasians do and stuff like that. You know what I mean? and I, and I, it always puzzles me and stuff when I see all these white folks had these dual citizenship. You might have a white person over here on the Liberty that might be Jewish, but he got a, a dual citizenship with Israel. You know what I'm saying? So why can't black people do the same thing, too? So your point is definitely well taken, Sister Digi. That's something that we have to continually to advocate for to our African governments over there to make sure that they don't forget us, that y'all owe us. You know what I mean? You should, you should be begging for us to come over there, you know what I mean, to so invest and, and, and come together. That, that, that's a given. That, to me, that's a no-brainer. So I appreciate you, Sister Digi, for, for putting that out there because that needs to be talked about and talked about and talked about till it's done because this is important. And that we should be, definitely be advocating for our black leadership to be making an issue of things like that. The sharpness to the sharpness of them running around talking about some vote for that Democratic Party or that racist Republican Party. This is the kind of stuff that they should be advocating for, you know? Exactly. So, I, mean, I, I, I definitely agree with you on that, Sister Digi. So that's, that's all I want to say in closing, Sister Digi. Good show tonight, Brother Ellen Richard, and good, and good information, Sister Digi. I mean, you, just, you, you laid out there, you gave an honest assessment. You know, you didn't, you didn't sugarcoat anything. You put it out there, and you, and you put it out there the way it is. You know, not, not what you necessarily, you know, uh, doing the fantasy thing. You just 
put the true reality out there. You know, you you told you you told they say they say you told truth, you put truth to power, and that's all you can do. Well, thank you, Sister Deja. Thanks, Brother Ellen Richard. Uh, Brother Ellen, you put me on mute. I'll listen to the remainder of the show. Talk to you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. Sister Deidre, anything that you want to say? Uh, how people can. Uh... Well, one thing I would love to say is about the woman king. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> no, I, I, I thank the brother. I, I, I appreciate his, his feedback. But with the woman king, I want to say, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but Viola um, Davis was born in a slave cabin. Do you know that? No, I didn't. Her family had never left the plantation that they were enslaved on, and she was born on a slave plantation. You know, she and I are the same age. So you know, her, and I'm you know I'm I'm, oh, you're I'm 56 you're 20? years young. Fifty six. She just turned fifty seven. <laughs> I will in a in a few weeks actually. Okay. Um, and um, they went from the plantation, uh, and I don't remember which state they were in, to to live in Rhode Island, and they were very poor, very poor. There's a lot of a lot of kids I know, kind of like my house, a lot of kids. Um, and Rhode Island, of course, if you know the history, was one of the points of the triangular slave trade. That is where most of the slave traders resided um, in in the United States. Rhode, in, in those New England states where Rhode Island was, mm-hmm. that was the main business that they did there. Um, and they were very racist, so she lived in this very racist um, situation. So I actually personally felt that it was... Um, and, and, and no, that I think that's where a lot of her her energy comes from because I think Viola Plummer, Plum, not Plummer, but Davis, Viola Davis goes from like an eight to a ten in her acting. Like I don't think she ever is like one through through uh, through seven in her energy in in any production that she does. It's just for the eight to ten. She's way up there with the all the drama. Wonderful actress. But I I enjoyed I enjoyed the entertainment value of the woman king mm-hmm. um I, I i felt that they were forthcoming as forthcoming as you can expect hollywood to be with uh explaining the that they were involved with in, uh selling people you know they did share the history around these nations um moving into the palm oil business um, but there was some distortion. I mean, I, I, I would say, you know, a lot of folks are angry because, you know, they don't want to glorify these these women uh, warriors because they really were all about uh, enslaving people. And and so, you know, I'm torn because I just really enjoyed seeing these powerful women on screen, okay? Um, but at the same time, yeah, you know, they were their role in in history was was horrible, you know. And I don't know if you can, you know, you, you know, maybe they maybe they should have done something. Maybe they should have done the story of Queen Calafia, who's a who's a uh, the woman who I don't know if you heard of Calafia. Uh, California is named after these Amazons mm-hmm. that ruled in Calafia. Maybe they should have told that story, you know, uh, and 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 used the warriors in that environment. Because it's a powerful story too, um, rather than telling this this story that that does have the effect of distorting history. Um, that's that's the only unfortunate thing. And some of these women actually, they're, they're still uh, 
they're still actually engaged in the protection of the, uh, you know, involved with the royal security. It's not that, 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 I can't remember their name. I think a shogi or something like that. They still exist um, today. So um, it's not even, you know, you know, it's not ancient history that these women existed. They're still around. But I thought the film, I enjoyed the film. I thought it was very well done. Gina Prince Bythewood, she did something amazing with probably not a big budget and, and without CGI, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of that technology. You had like folks who were really doing stunts and, um, you know, it was just, just so well done. Um, unfortunately, you know, they didn't, um, I don't know what kind of uh, research they did before they did the film, um, <laughs> especially around the script, but they probably should have investigated a little bit more um, before they they told the story the way they told it, you know, so that's the, that's the downside. But I think they ended up doing well, you know. Well, uh, I, I like the way that you put it, uh, Attorney Deirdre. <laughs> Richard? Yeah, yeah. It says, and you know, I, I came away with the same feeling at the the conflict of it was done well, or it gave a positive feeling. You know, watching the you know in the in the, in the format it was done, um, but still dealing with the you know not, not the, um, what was the historical inconsistency. And I have to say, and I'll be saying it you know regularly, and the question of why. The this film and why now, um, um, but I think that the point, the the work that you're doing, even in relationship to the bronze, helps us. It gives us this opportunity to to to, to flush out this historical narrative, like the what's what's the good, bad, and ugly that mm-hmm. we have to reconcile with in order to be able to understand why what we're dealing with right now. Um, so uh, I, I did. Yeah, it's interesting. I think uh, so far most people have said they recognize the feeling of it was good, um, the imagery, the powerness, the powerfulness of it, um, but still dealing with uh, the uncomfortable, you know, understanding that it portrays that we need to flush out more, become more aware of, and that's that historical narrative. Well, one thing that I didn't hear too much of was people complaining about telling, uh, doing this film and exposing, you know, uh, Africa's role in slavery. You know, it did do that. It did address that. I mean, that's what you right. saw throughout the whole film. But, you know, the, 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 the Pan-Africanists, I didn't really see them complaining. I mean, maybe, maybe you guys heard, you know, complaints no. from, from those folks. They didn't seem to have a problem with the movie, but with the real, <laughs> the real person, the real person talking about, you know, the African role, I mean, they were all over me. I mean, I was called all kinds of horrible things and told that I need I needed education and all of this kind of stuff. I was fascinated, you know. Mm. You know, and I thought to myself, boy, these folks they act like they act like they know that I that I've you know, studied law in Africa and been working with African presidents, you know, for quite a number of years. They they act like, you know, that none of that actually ever existed or it didn't matter. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know what? I was kind of surprised at that too, but I'll just leave it like that. I was surprised that some folks that I thought would know better, uh, kind of, um, said that the movie was great. I don't, you know, I, I, 
I, I agree with the it way you put it, attorney. Any catching any of the, new, the, the missing information. <laughs> let me, let and, me. And again, I think it's just, um, I, I could, you know, and I'll, I'll use this symbolism. I mean, we can go to, was that the 70s when the Budweiser was doing the great kings of Africa, you know, um, the posters and everybody wanted to have one. Um, and then it was, you know, and it's not just about um, even Ebony, um, Ebony and his spread, you know, with Lerone Bennett, you know, making, you know, the connection and relationship to um, African kingdoms. So the, 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 the at that moment before DNA, um, um, black people making that connection in that generation, <clears throat> which is now older, making mm-hmm. this connection to Africa, um, uh, being different, say, than at the turn of the 20th century, um, with the Harlem Renaissance using that as a, the benchmark and the, that generation making this connection with Africa. Um, mm-hmm. what's, hap- what's different now is that it's a lot more information, a lot more research done that has to be, we have to now um, reconcile mm-hmm. our moral moral understanding from our romantic understanding. And at the same time, this generation is making more decisions about um their own self-identity. Are we African, global, or are we um, American, African, specific? Um, you know, <laughs> are, who, how do we identify, um, you know, who is, are we human beings, or are we, um, you know, broken um, individuals harmed by somebody and, and blaming them compared to our, you know, um, the, the ones who had maybe direct, contact and putting us in this situation. These mm-hmm. kind of questions is this generational um, consideration that, well, I, that wasn't of, Sorry, my fault. No, no, go ahead. Just speaking of like this generation, um, I, I find myself interacting quite a lot with, you know, I call them the California kids mm-hmm. um, who are just doing a lot of remarkable work around uh, in, in the movement. You know, they're definitely being, um, there's a diversity of, of, of them. Let me just mm-hmm. say that. I don't know uh, all of the the different entities, but the ones who are associated with the commission that's, right. that's the, doing the um, the hearings around the uh, AB 3121, I believe it is, right. um, are just, I think, brilliant. And, you know, th- th- there are issues around what do we label ourselves. Part of it is really, I think, and it's in part connected to, you know, the relation. They they can see clearly. They're not disillusioned by the kind of treatment we're getting from Africa. You know, this is what this is how I'm seeing it. I don't think they're disillusioned at all. You know, there's a lot of folks who have romantic ideas. Mm-hmm. You know what they imagine. You know what they want. Um, but these folks are like, you know, <laughs> what has Africa done for us? You know, there's nothing. We get, but there's nothing, you know. Um, and so their attitude is different. It's like, well, should we even continue to identify with the continent? And so, there's, you know, maybe we should just focus on what we really do have, and what, and that is whatever identity we can uh, can 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 carry forward from our from our ancestors who were enslaved here. Now, there's another nuance to it that I think is really critical and uh, and, I, and also brilliant at the same time. 
um, just looking at, you know, how Native Americans are viewed in this nation, the kind, the special status they have yeah. here, and and how, you know, it, it, it is rooted in, you know, uh, treaties and, right. you know, history, you know and, and the closest thing we have are things that were born out of the Freedmen's Bureau, the, the right. language of the Freedmen, and that's why I think they use this, these these languages, this language, because it, it makes sense, you right. know, that if that we probably should have had a freedman's role that was established so that we know who we are. Right. Um, because today, you know, I, I have to be honest, I didn't even realize this was happening. But today, what used to be the slavery reparations movement has become the everybody black who has something done wrong to them reparations movement. And it's no longer, you know, there's no distinction between the slavery, uh, the victims, the people who are connected to the slave trade and the people being enslaved here. And um, there's, there's, there's no, and, and the movement, it's just it's for everyone that's black. That means, you know, the folks from the kingdom of Benin who immigrate here, who are citizens now, well, when, the, when there's a reparations check cut, they're going to get one too. You know, this is how it looks. This is the way, you know, and their folks really fighting to say, yeah, everybody should get it because everybody suffers something. I, 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 I don't, I don't fully agree with that. I think that we really do have to distinguish between the kinds of harms that were suffered. And, and that's why, you know, I'm starting to speak more about <laughs> with working for slavery justice, because um, I wanted to be clear that the work that I do is that all black folks will benefit, but ultimately it's really about, my enslaved ancestors and what and what uh and and what we should be able to inherit as a result of their labors you know this is really what my focus is this is really what i'm dedicated to in the work that i do and, and oh yeah and sister dj the, the reason why i i'm so excited about the work that you're doing because and what i'm seeing in this you know discussion in this moment you know is that because it becomes, as you raised about the Native Americans, you know, and their specific status mm-hmm. as a political entity in relationship to the nation state called United States of America, compared to those who are descendants of slaves specifically. And that mm-hmm. being defined in the 13th Amendment, you know, we have never, t- and this is where I, I differ with a lot of people because agency from legal standing is not other people's responsibility. Mm-hmm. It's our responsibility to, to, to establish that and operate from that by either within the, the confines of the state laws, the national laws, or international laws. We have mm-hmm. not done that yet. Now, will we move to that? I don't know. But the questions and the two um, experiences that you're pushing is pushing us further to that point because the mm-hmm. court has to define what is our standing mm-hmm. when we mm-hmm. demand entitlement to certain things in this case and demand ownership co-ownership of the bronze mass or demand um, repair from corporations who were engaged in the business of slavery um, that we are entitled. But that is a legal standing that, in, in my mind, that we mm-hmm. have to take. Not when we have to make ourselves under and make others understand we, as a political, economic, and historical unit, 
is a people who have been harmed, and we demand justice and repair, like right. any like any other um, group. That's and right. We haven't That's taken right. that position yet. I don't believe. Mm-hmm. Let's grab this last call before we uh, wind things down. Let's go to four six nine four six nine. Texas. Hello, how are you all doing? How are you, sir? Great, Great show, like always. Uh, the sister gives some more information that we need to do some research. I did see the the woman came. I thought that it was great. Um, and and Richard, you're exactly right. He did have a jury curl. I noticed that. That was one of the things that I did notice about the king. <laughs> I thought it was. <laughs> yeah, you you didn't you didn't mistake that. It was he had a couple of different hairstyles, but one of those he had a jerry curl, and I mm. caught that right away. I was saying to my brother, "What is, what is this?" So yeah, he 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 did have that, uh, but it was very good. You come away <laughs> with more questions that if this if this movie does doesn't do anything else, it causes people to begin to think and do some research. What I'm trying to do is figure out a way to streamline certain things. So I'm going to try to look from a certain time perspective, including European. I think I'll probably try to go with maybe about 1400 to about 18, 1900, you know, uh, when Europe was coming out of, out of uh, being dominated by the Moors. And then that, all the, the, the build up to the slave trade. So I'm going to try to streamline it in that area. But I thought it was very, very good. Uh, I think that people should go. It wasn't, it wasn't male bashing. You know, we, my brother, he, he was hesitant about going, but after listening to a couple of people who I respect and they kind of gave the thumbs up, I decided to go. And it was very, very, very good. Uh, the only thing that I th- saw that was a little bit, I had a problem with, the king was a little bit weak. You know, he was real weak. And then they had the the, uh, the eunuch who had a little sugar in his tank. But other than that, I thought that it was very, very good. So uh, that's all I have. And again, Thank you so much, sister, for your uh, your activism and your work. And thank you, Richard and uh, Elliot, for once again a great show. Listen, before you leave, you might find this uh, market on your calendar. The thirtieth of this thank month, you. it's a uh, uh, professor out of uh, the University of North Carolina, Charlotte, that's going to join us, uh, Professor Ogundrian. And I know I'm butchering his name, the first name, Richard. I can't. Do you remember his first name, Richard? No. <laughs> the, the 30th of Richard, this month. Richard, do you remember his first name? No. Um, you, no, no. It uh, doesn't matter. You say yeah, it's the 30th, yeah, the 30th of this, 30th month, of this right? month. Yes, he's a uh, professor at the University of North Carolina. He's from the continent. Uh, okay, but well, he's I done extensive. All, all the time, so. He's um, done extensive archaeological. Have, he's done yeah, extensive. you have, I'll, I'll tune into it. He's done extensive archaeological research uh, okay. on post and pre 
Ogodunri, um, I'm trying to get his last, um, Ogodunri, he's at, yeah, at University of North Carolina. Um, yeah, he's going to, he's going to be dealing with, uh, uh, post and pre-colonial West Africa. Uh, okay. you know, he's done a lot of primary research in that area and it, I think it'll be an interesting program. Yeah. And, and see, that's what I'm looking at. I'm looking to try to put all this into the context, how Europeans came out of, of their uh, disorganization and they decided that they would come together as one, even though they fought, they're still savages among one another. But the thing that they differ from what, how we differ in my opinion is they'll fight tooth and nail, kill one another, stab their own mother and steal from their own mother. But when it comes to people from outside of Europe, of Europeans, they will come together as one to fight that that whatever group that is, and and we have to, you know, have that same kind of mentality. We're not going to like one another, and won't agree with everything, and having disagreements are healthy because it causes you to think about certain things that well I never thought about it that way. That's why you have various guests that come on the show to enlighten you. But when it comes down to where your disagreement will cause you to sabotage the whole uh, movement, then that's the problem that we have to get past. Thank you for your contribution, sir. Thank you. All right. Attorney Deirdre, I want to thank you for being with us. The door is always open so you can come back and uh, give us updates or anything you want to share. It's, I mean, the door is always open. I, I, it's my fault that we didn't get back to you. It's been about a year since you were on with us before. But uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm like I said, I appreciate this opportunity, and I want to encourage all to to visit our website. We have a petition. Um, please visit our website and um, sign a petition. We have a movie there that you can you can screen about the Benin Bronzes. The website is RSG Incorp. If you send me that um, uh, information of the petition, I'll put it on the Time for Awakening website so that people can see it and also view the movie. I'll, I'll put Absolutely. all, I'll put I will, all that I will up there. The, I will forward the links to you right after we're done with this call. Good. Good. <laughs> oh, shucks. I'm liking this. I'm liking this. That's, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I just want to thank you for being with us. And uh, I'll talk to you. I'll be in touch with you because I want to go further with uh, my research that I've done. Not, not my research. The research that they sent back to me. Oh. Yes, there you go. There you go. And the, okay, and the, well, it's your research. You're the one gathering this information. <laughs> wonderful. It's, it's been wonderful. Thank you for having me. I'll be in touch with you. Thank you. Take care now. Bye-bye. Richard, interesting conversation, man. Yes, yes. It brings up really good uh, uh, I, I noticed that uh, we had a little back and forth going on in the chat and and I notice even you know um, uh, 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 uncomfortable moments of dealing with um, you know where we are. But I, w- one thing that comes out of Elliot, and I and I really um, respect what Sister Deidre Farman Pellman is doing in relationship to the law, is moving our moving us closer and closer to making this decision legally where we stand, not where they said we stand, but where do we say we stand? You know, 
because it's a, it become in the future it will, it's going to truly become important. It's not going to be good just to know the history. It's not going to be good to just to label yourself. It's going to be good. It's only be good to where we can be able to say this is how we see the world, how we're going to construct the world in our own best interest, and others have to live or die with that, but not necessarily um, dictate. Um, but we have to we have to be unified. Um, and operating in order that to happen. And one of the tools is that we have to have legal standing, um, not just in the United States, but um, in, in amongst other other people, whether they're ethnic nations or nation states, um, because we have a particular history. I agree with that. But, we, we, you know, are we just a particular history of human property? I don't agree with that. Uh, you know, I just, that part. And we, 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 we have a global history also, not just a particular history, but a global history, good, bad, and ugly. Richard, uh, I didn't, uh, you know what? I'm going to have to play the podcast back. She mentioned something about uh, Kamala Harris being on one of those boards or something, and she yeah, didn't have yeah, anything to contribute or say in reference to these Benin Bronze. Did you remember when she said that? Yeah, it was the, the, um, the, the, what, let me see. It was that um, the Board of Regency in relationship to whether the bronzes would um, be, and she said it's the Supreme Court justice. And yeah, she said she the, mentioned, um, she said Kamala Harris and the Supreme Court justice. Right, right. Um, now, I assume, I assume that, she, in fact, yeah. I know she was talking about the ones that are black, and I don't think she was talking about uh, Thomas. Right. But they, but the thing that the position they, if I understood all right, the position they came around to was that the um, museum had a right to actually be engaged with the um, to transfer. Where she's saying we have co ownership. Here is black people in this position who are saying, you know, well, um, the museum or United States has the right to negotiate. You don't have no co-ownership. You don't have no, the argument that you're making doesn't stop, you know, and we're in favor of, again, in my mind, United States and its, and its institution, the museums, to make this agreement to transfer back these bronze masks. Yeah, well, she, she said that she was surprised that, uh, I know, she said that the, uh, the institutions were surprised that she was even coming forward with this grievance. Right. I guess they figured, well, we got people that look like you ain't saying nothing. Who are you? And, and then she said and, that and, the and Smithsonian and lied. This is the powerful point, Elliot. Who are you to had, say, I'm coming to you as a, as a legal entity making an argument against you or for something that is entitled to me? Not a legislative, a legal argument. I'm not asking you to put a law together to work, to help me, to work for me. I'm saying I'm suing for the right of something that is mine. You know, and in in her past suit was I'm suing your, your large corporations. I'm suing you because you were engaged in a practice that harmed me a historical practice that harmed me and I want to get, I'm, I want to get paid. The point is that this historical experience, she's a representative of that. And once you get one, all of us 
can take that position. We can take it individually or what they call class action suits. But we haven't moved to take a That's what she's upset. Like, why aren't we moving like we were moving for a class action suit? Yeah, well, we're divided. I think we've been we've been doing this program long enough to know why we ain't moving, Richard. In that respect, (laughs) and I think Attorney Palin might understand it, but she might not want to say it on the air. So you know, because she moves in certain circles, so I think she understands what she did because she she kind of let out uh, near the end of the conversation when she said she in these rooms, and it's more than one person that's a. Uh, you know, working against the interests of black folks. She said it's several. Hey, Ellen, she said in the example of there's one who knows that they are getting paid to do this, but then that person gets in there and there's others doing the same thing and they don't know them. (laughs) (laughs) And we used to say there's a lot of black folks who don't have to get paid. They do this just naturally. Wow. They don't have to work for the ABC community. They just, because they, you know, whatever their orientation is, and that goes to the, you know, the other part about the mindset, you know, the values and who values, who, who values are you addicted to other than your own? Whose interests are you working in other than your own? Richard, if you remember what she said that she, was in direct conversation with the princess of the right. uh, of Benin. Uh, you know, I'm I'm gonna have to look yeah. back. You know you what know, I was talking uh, about. Been of Benin, yes, yes. And she said that she agrees that right. the diaspora has a right, right, but she don't make the decision. It's a right. it's political. It's by the government, right? And she's been trying to communicate with them. It's been no response, right? Um. And she said that she was kind of curious to why the United States in particular, I think she said that Britain want to hold on to theirs, and I think Germany does too, according to published reports. Right. But the United States is willing to send 39 pieces back. I think they got more than that. Right. But in, according to this published report, they, they're willing to send 39 pieces back. But she said that they don't have a facility right now mm-hmm. to house those pieces. So she's curious to why they're sending them back. Richard, um, if you remember, now when she see it rang my it rang a bell in my head when she said that this thing was political. When the princess said that she agrees that they have a moral right, but she can't do anything about it. If you remember when they took that vote, the African Union mm. about support for the United States and NATO, which is Europe, in mm. reference to this thing with Russia. Mm-hmm. several of the countries, overwhelming number, abstained. And, so, and uh, I think it was a few of them that voted totally against it. Right. But one of the countries that voted for it, you know who it was, Nigeria, was yeah. Nigeria. So it's not mm-hmm. surprising to me that the United States want to give them a little whatever, trinket or whatever, mm-hmm. in favor. See, that's what I didn't mention it when Attorney Palin was on. But uh, come on, we got to start connecting the dots. You still mm-hmm. got people in these governments, just like it was two, three hundred years ago, that was willing to sell people that look like them to Europeans for profit. You still got people in these governments that's doing the same thing mm-hmm. on the continent and here. It's no different. 
agree. So I just thought it was kind of, it, it, I'm just connecting the dots. Nigeria was one of the countries that stood out in my mind that voted lock, stock, and barrel uh, in lockstep with the, with the United States. Mm-hmm. So now all of a sudden they're going to get some artifacts back and they don't even have a facility to house them. Wow. Richard, come to the end of another program, man. Let me read the, uh, oh, and um, I want to get the, uh, well, that's only 26, so we still got uh, time. The uh, black, uh, the uh, uh, the black farmers uh, out of Georgia, the uh, West Georgia Cooperative is having that uh, co-op uh, gathering. Right. Uh, from around the country with, with uh, different black co-ops coming together. Uh, to see what they can do uh, in unity as far as uh, moving forward, not abandoning their particular ones that they're doing in the different states, but how they can work together. So I'm going to plan to air that on the 26th, which is Wednesday, uh, the 26th of October. Uh, I think it's 6 to 8. i got to double-check that time. And, but, but I'll make more of an announcement of that on next uh, Sunday's program. Uh, before we leave, um, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, African Perspectives with Brother Oshi. Always interesting topics and dialogue on African Perspectives. That's Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Later on, Monday evening, Black Therapy Central with host Dr. Maria Kambon and Dr. Kamal Kambon. That's 8 to 9. Conversation reparations from 9 to 10. First and third Monday of the month with uh, Brother Jamoke as host. On Tuesday, 8 to 10 p.m., Black Reality Think Tank with Dr. William Rogers. On Thursday, Mississippi on the move. That's the Black Liberation Movement down in Mississippi. Uh, Brother Patrick Lumumba is host. That's from 7 to 8 on Thursday evening. Time for an awakening is back from 8 until on Friday and from Saturday. On Saturday, from 7 to 9, the elders of Sankofa would host Brother Alfonso. Watkins, I want to thank everybody for listening to the program this evening. Lively discussion as always, and we'll be back on Friday, Lord willing, to continue on this path towards an awakening. Peace. Peace. If you're driving through the country on a lazy afternoon, Children playing after school. They seem to be so unaware. I know, I know the things that they'll soon have to take care of.
Children. To save the children. 